Leaving a Legacy is brought to you by HipstersOfTheCoast.com and can be found on the Top Deck app every Friday. You can support the show directly at Patreon.com slash Leaving a Legacy. Magic is power. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another awesome episode of Leaving a Legacy. Uh, I, as you know, am Jerry. Patrick, unfortunately, is unable to join us tonight. His his kids are getting a little unruly. They're of that age. Uh, but it's okay. We have an awesome, uh, awesome episode planned with a really cool guest. Uh, before we get into that, though, just really quickly, I want to mention uh, the Children Organs Transplants Association for Wesley Charity Drive that we're still going. Uh, we have the Chalice for the, of the Void up for raffle right now. Uh, that has a bunch of entries into it. Pat isn't here to be my Vanna White this week, so we're going to pull... Uh, push off the drawing until next week when uh, Pat can join us. But that gives you guys another week to uh, buy some uh, raffle tickets so we can get that Chalice of the Void raffled up. I just checked and we're at like $913, so really want to push it over to the $1,000 mark for uh, the donation to Children's Organ Transplant. So check that out. Uh, to the real you know, meat of the episode, though, I want to welcome back one of our favorite guests, Mr. Gavin Verhey, how's it going? It's going great. I'm so glad to be back. I always love coming on the show, and this week is no exception. You know what? There's there's half the normal hosts, but we'll have to make up for it with twice the awesome. So let's do it. <laughs> oh, awesome, awesome possum. Hell yeah. Awesome uh, possum. That's always a, such a funny phrase to me, not to get off track <laughs> in the first two minutes of the show, but I mean, you know, how many times yeah. have you met an awesome possum? I mean, I have met possums. None of them have been awesome. It's actually been terrifying experiences almost every time. I'm just, I'm just saying. I mean, English has a lot of weird idioms, but yeah, you you're just you just show up and you're like an awesome possum. Like, there's no possum who ever comes up and is like, you know what? Let's give, let me give you a high five. It just doesn't happen. It just doesn't happen. <laughs> yeah, like he like jumps over a jumps over a high bar, does a backflip, fireworks go off, and he that yeah, it doesn't happen. You're right. You're right. Now, there's a there's a card for un four awesome possum. I'll have to get that to Rosewater. <laughs> Hell yes, that would be amazing. Uh, but today we wanted to invite you on, Gavin, to kind of take a look back because the last 12 months of Magic uh, have been pretty sweet, especially for us legacy players. And, you know, I really just kind of wanted to get the backstory behind uh, some of these sweet cards that have come out in the last year. Absolutely. And, you know, one thing that we always try and do is while we're, of course, focused on formats like Standard. Um, a lot with legacy we like peppering in a few cards here and there because the, the barrier to make a card strong in legacy is is really hard to do but if we can find a spell that would also be effective in standard and is also played in legacy or find something that solves a specific need in legacy we'll try and get it in where possible um you know a great example of this and i know it's a little bit old now I, i've used i've used this example for so long that at one point it was new and now it's old but i, I do love it <laughs> is abrupt decay you know we made abrupt yeah. decay knowing hey this would be a fine standard card people 
people play cards in standard that cost three or less. But in Legacy, that was huge. It killed off counterbalance. Everything is going to have a cheaper mana cost. And often when you can focus on dealing with the converted mana cost of spells, that'll help them get played in older yes. formats. Because standard, you know, is a little bit slower. You get to go up to six, seven mana cards. Where modern, Legacy, Vintage, you're mostly playing those one, two, three mana really effective, really efficient cards. Yeah, I feel kind of a more recent example for that is kind of like a Fatal Push. I feel that falls yeah. into that category perfectly where it's you know fine and standard it's not going to kill you know the huge bombs that we see show up in standard but it's just super relevant for legacy where everything costs less than four pretty much and absolutely oh, absolutely and in addition to that of course you've got fetch lands in legacy which yes. go a huge way toward making sure that that revolt is on because in standard exactly yeah you'll have an evolving wild your creature will die sometimes you can turn it on it's still an excellent removal spell don't get me wrong i've, I've played four and many a standard deck but in legacy and modern it's basically a black destroy any creature spell and there's cards like Tarmogoyf and Dark Confidant and Meddling Mage and all this stuff running around where Fatal Push is just at its strongest. Ironically, actually, a thing I thought was really interesting is when you play against an Eldrazi deck that plays a bunch of the colorless Eldrazi, mm-hmm. often that's the place where Fatal Push is weak because they'll play, you know, their five-mana right. Reality Smasher or something. Yeah. And they're like, oh, no, I got this handful of Fatal Pushes. What am I doing? <laughs> exactly. Um, at, um, I was out at SCGCon recently. Uh, it was a big event they had out in at Star yeah. City Games. And one of the events they ran was a no modern ban list event. So oh, it was yeah. modern, but with no ban list, okay? And the deck that won, out of all the banned cards, it could be Skull Clamp, could be whatever, was this Eldrazi deck that used Ayavugan and the, uh, the Temple um, to accelerate uh, Eldrazi out Eldrazi. Temple, yeah. mm-hmm. And of course, of course, the deck that it has to play against over and over again is these counterbalance decks. And the counterbalance decks are great. They've got top and counterbalance and all this action. But then they yeah. just cast like a five-mana spell. And right. Like, uh-oh. It's like good can't, luck. You know, I can't counter that. I don't have anything yeah. for your five and six-mana creatures. So right. It's, it's like, funny how that works. What's that force of will? Is it in the format to be your five-drop to flip off counterbalance? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. There you go. I remember when I was – I've always been a blue-white control fan for a very long time. And – I always enjoyed playing cards uh, like Eternal Dragon, and there was actually a Legacy Grand Prix a very long time ago. This was in Chicago, or I, I mean, it was GP Chicago, but it was actually otherwise outside the city of Chicago. Mm-hmm. And it was a v- super long time ago. I want to say 2006, maybe 2007. Really before Legacy was defined, before the Star City Open event started happening. So there, it was kind of a Wild West in a lot of ways. And I played this blue-white control deck, that actually had Eternal Dragon in it because oh, yeah. Counterbalance was big in the format. And if you got into a blue-white mirror match, like, and the, ga- the game's going to go long. We're going to attrition and trade a bunch of counterspells and resources. I had Counterbalance top. They had Counterbalance top. The game's just going to go long. But the- <laughs> they're not going to have any sevens in their deck. Right. So um, <laughs> that, was, that was nice. Exactly. I remember those days, yeah. But enough about Eternal Dragon. That's a, that's an old an old card. That's old legacy. Let's talk old about news. new face of legacy. Yeah, new face. And so let we're gonna. This is kind of honorable mention, but I just wanted to squeak them in just because these are three really cool cards, uh, and I do think they had a big in- impact on uh, legacy. Uh, squeaking in with Hour of Devastation. Uh, first up on the docket, we have a braid, which is kind of become a. Uh, stock sideboard card for the combo decks like uh sneak and show and reanimator uh just a really useful modal instant what tell us about kind of like modal cards in general because i feel the flexibility can really tip a maybe playable card into the playable realm 
to me, a braid is a gorgeous magic card. Yes. And part of the reason why is so in magic, there's a lot of cards that you'll look at and, you'll, and you will say, that's a sideboard card. It shows yes. up in a sideboard and doesn't show up in a main deck. And that's because it answers a very specific thing. And there's a lot of card types in magic, a lot of situations in magic, of cards that you just can't really main deck because they're going to be dead in a lot of matchups. But the corollary to that is that means that there's a lot of cards that you can play that your opponent will not have an answer to in a lot of matchups. And, of Mm. course, artifacts and enchantments are the two poster children for this, where a lot of people don't main deck artifact and enchantment removal, but they'll sideboard artifact and enchantment removal. But magic... I think, and many of us I think would, would, would agree, is a lot more fun when you can play main deck answers to those cards, especially when they're prominent in the format. So it's not just, well, I played my enchantment that you can't beat. Oh, I guess I have, I, you don't have any answers to my warship. The game's over. So we try and find places where they can get into main decks. A, an example of this would be cards like Oblivion Ring or Cast Out or Banishing Light, whatever, whatever version you want to say for standard play, where you can, there are catch-all answers to any non creature permanent, or uh, sorry, non-land permanent your opponent might put down. And a braid, so coming off of Kaladesh block, we thought some of the artifacts would probably be powerful. We didn't know exactly which ones at the time, but we wanted to make sure we had answers to them for standard. And uh, as it turns out, yeah, artifacts were pretty pretty powerful. You had Smuggler's <laughs> yeah. Copter, you had Kirin, Etherworks Marvel, a number of incredibly powerful cards. These artifact blocks seem to get us every time. So we yeah. wanted to make sure we had some catch-all answers. And a braid is beautiful to me, because it was a way to get a card into some main decks that could also kill off artifacts. Because two mana deal three to a creature is very efficient. A lot of times yes. Lightning Strike is going to shoot your opponent's creature anyway, you know? Yeah, in a burn deck, it'd go to their face. Or if the game's gone on long enough in your midrange, it'd go to their face to kill them. But quite often, you'll hit this creature. And the additional flexibility of being able to kill an artifact sometimes is wonderful. So in standard, it's seen a lot of main deck play, of course. In modern, it's seen some main deck and some sideboard play. And then it's really cool to see the same kind of thing showing up in sideboards in Legacy as a card that could be multi-use, right? Because you can either bring it in if you need to kill off cheap creatures or if you need to kill artifacts or if their deck has both of them which is really nice yeah what i love about it for the combo decks is there's usually two forms of onboard hate that you worry about as a combo deck and that is either artifacts uh such as like graph diggers cage uh for reanimator or pithing needle for sneak and show uh or ensnaring bridge uh you know these artifacts that are just catch-all answers uh that are that can really shut down a lot of decks uh and then the other half of it is uh hate bears like two two just the two drop creature that stops you from doing something is just a pain in the ass and a braid being able to answer both of them really lets you kind of just trim down on your uh, your sideboard slots which you know is very important in a format like legacy right being able to kill off damping sphere or yes. thalia are both huge yeah, I right. mean, that's absolutely gigantic and i'm really glad that it's found that kind of kind of spot and and it's cool that you get that kind of interaction too where Okay, well, I have this card in my sideboard that kills off your hate cards. And then that makes the other decks think, okay, well, if everyone is playing a braid, maybe it's time to go to some enchantments. Maybe I want to play, I'll use a a weird example, but Arcane Laboratory or something like that, you know? Something Mm -hmm. which which cuts them off but can't be killed by a braid. So it helps the metagame kind of ebb and flow, which is really cool. And I can even see a braid showing up sometimes every now and then in a main deck too like oh well hey you know i used to be i would play this main deck echoing truth to help deal with this kind of stuff now we're going to play a a braid or two so i I love that it worked out that way and i love modal cards because really they're a way to sneak those kind of effects those artifact and enchantment removal specs effects into main decks um you see it all the way from limited through legacy and limited for example they've kind of started to make this green class of card that's like destroy a flyer or destroy an enchantment or 
mm-hmm. you know, a variety, do one of two things, and the other one will be like a very narrow effect, like kill off an enchantment or an artifact or a flyer, something like that. And that just helps you get those cards into main decks when they normally wouldn't make your main deck. And that, once again, gives that great game one interaction. So it's not about, hey, I played my unbeatable card. You don't have an answer for it. It allows you to put cards in your deck, even if it's at a slightly worse rate that work the way you want them to. Mm. Are balancing modal cards uh, difficult? I feel like it's a kind of a seesaw effect, and if you tweak it too far in one direction, it, it's really a possibility of it just becoming broken. Yeah, it's a really narrow band to walk, and there's so many knobs to tweak. I mean, just if you think about how we make a card, okay, you've got a mana cost, you've got its card type, and in the case of a spell, instant or sorcery. And then you've got all of its effects. Now, with a charm or with a modal card or anything where you choose a, a command, right, and where you choose one or more things, there's so many different permutations and combinations to think about. It's not about just doing one thing, but the fact it can do two things. And you don't want it to be better than either of the other things on its rate. So what is the closest you can get without going over? And in the case of a braid, it's like, okay, well, it's not quite as good as lightning strike, or at least in, in some situations, it's worse than lightning strike at hitting players. So if all you mm-hmm. want to do is burn out your opponent... Not the bet card for you. But if you're not trying to do that and you're willing to give up that sacrifice, it's an excellent tool to also give you a little bit of extra flexibility. And yeah. I always love when there are cards in the format that make you make interesting deck-building decisions. And so the fact that right now in Standard you can choose between Lightning Strike and a Braid is really fascinating. Because, okay, well, which do I want to play? And what does my deck want to do? Does it want to go to the face? Do I think my opponent's going to have artifacts to deal with? Things like that. Yeah, for sure. Uh, speaking of uh, tweaking things and kind of walking the line, uh, next one on our list here, uh, it's shown up more in modern and vintage, but it does make appearances in uh, Legacy Dredge, Hollow One. Uh, some people have been saying this one's kind of a little overpowered. Where, where do you kind of stand on Hollow One and the fact, you know, that alternate casting costs can some, sometimes get you in trouble? Anytime you have a way to reduce a cost, especially down to zero. There's yes. always a chance something could break. <laughs> right. Every single time, right? You know, we, whenever we make a card like this, we're like, you know, we just like, <laughs> crossing our fingers a little bit. Right. Um, but at, at the same time, it's really fun to kind of push the envelope because if yes. we never took any risks, then Magic wouldn't have those like big swings and some of those, those, those moments. So, you know, on the whole, Hollow One is a card that I think is in a pretty good spot. Yeah. I, you, have to, you definitely have to do work. It, it's not free, certainly. It's not just like, oh, I'm, you know, did nothing and now I got to play this hollow one. Yeah, it only goes in very specific decks and you have to work for it. And the fact that there is a modern deck that plays cards like Goblin Lore is yes. I mean, you would have never imagined that. Before, Goblin right? Lore turned into like a $30 card overnight. It is amazing. Like just <laughs> you take these like old bulk bulk cards that no one ever plays with and then all of a sudden they're super relevant again it is awesome. I love that. You're like, "All right, Burning Inquiry. If I had played Burning Inquiry in Modern a few years ago, <laughs> I would have got laughed out of the room." Now it's like, "Yeah, of course you play Burning Inquiry. I mean, come on." Right. Um, and it, I will say that we have to be careful if, for example, a card like Hollow One is the best thing you can be doing in a format, where mm. it's – especially if, if the best deck in the format is turn to one burning inquiry, cross your fingers, play Hollow One, then that could be kind of frustrating. But, it, you know, I think it's in a really interesting position where there's play with it and play against it. And fortunately in these older formats, Modern and Legacy, you've got cards like Path to Exile, Swords to Plowshares. You have answers to these kinds of cards. Right. So it's just one really powerful thing you can do. And a sea of powerful things, but definitely when we're designing, yeah, anytime any card can go down to zero, we always we always tug on our neck collars a little bit. <laughs> right. Um, you also, see this actually most often with activated abilities. We don't make them very very often, but whenever there's a card that allows its activated ability to be reduced or reduces other activated abilities, often we'll say that you can't reduce them to zero, just because 
who knows what might happen if you could yeah. activate this a million times, uh, right? Someone gets a thing where you activate it a million times, and then they get their Darush spiritualist, and it's a got infinite toughness, and then who knows? Like you know, Shuko is just <laughs> you're going off the rails. Exactly. Um, so, like cephalid breakfast. Uh, all you know, just anytime you could just do something over and over again for free, you can probably find a way to take advantage of that. <laughs> right. You know, if on paper. You would be like, why would you want to target your creature a thousand times? That doesn't make any <laughs> right. sense. But, of course, Magic has 25 years of history. I mean, this year we're about, is Magic's 25th year. We're actually about a week out from its birthday. It was about a week ago that it was its official 25th birthday. Oh. So so good work, Magic. And there's a lot of weird cards out there. And, I mean, it's adorable that cards like Cephalid Illusionist exist and allow this <laughs> kind of combo. If you're out there listening and you're not, you're not familiar, Cephalid Illusionist is a creature. It costs two mana. It's a 1-1. One, one. It has some ra- random text, but the important part is whenever you target it with anything, it's, you mill three cards. So if you just have a z- way to target it for free over and over again, you can mill your deck. And as I'm sure you imagine, there are many things you can do when you mill your deck. Which is also, by the way, it's funny. If you, if you do a player who isn't as entrenched in magic and you're mm-hmm. like, all right, check it out. I got this sweet combo <laughs> where I use these two cards and I activate them 100,000 times. And then I mill away my entire <laughs> library. Isn't that sweet? They're like, dude, don't you lose the game? Yeah, don't you lose the game? <laughs> yeah. But of course not because, you, you know, you've got Narc Amoebas and you've got a Dread Return. And then it's, it's all it's all sunshine and roses and zombies from there. So exactly. anyway, we are, we are always super careful with anything that can be reduced to zero mana. That's historically – historically the things that bite us are cost cheating – and tutoring. So we try to be careful with those. And sometimes you get them both in one package. Stoneforge Mystic is a great example of this. It's a cost-cheating right. tutor. Probably <laughs> Tinker, another great example. Oh, what yes. if I just paid through mana for any artifact in my deck? What could go wrong? A lot, as it turns out. A lot. So much more. Well, we, we would argue, by the way, and I'm curious what you think. Do you think Tinker is the most powerful card ever printed? I would say yes, because Tinker is essentially... Like, imagine if Show Intel said, instead of putting a creature from your hand into play, put a creature from your deck into play. Like, that's what I think of when I think of, t- of Tinker, is just like Show Intel with a tutor, with a tutor tagged onto it. Like, the fact that it has to be an artifact is not very relevant. There have been so many sweet artifacts printed over the years that you can find a way to make up for the, for that, uh, restriction. Yeah, I mean, it's you can argue cards. It's an interesting argument. We talk about this at work every now and then. The discussion will come up because, of course, you got the Power Nine, you've got Lotus, you've got Ancestral, all insanely powerful cards. And then, but Tinker, on the flip side, a Lotus is amazing on turn one. Like it can speed you to victory. It's great in a storm deck. A lot of things like that. But at any point in the game, you have a, a three mana of it available. If you built your deck around Tinker, you, you're just going to do your thing. You're, you're going to get a Mind Slaver or a Blightsteel Colossus or something, kill off your opponent. I mean. I'm, I don't know if it necessarily is the most powerful card of all time, but it's in contention, and that's, yeah, that that kind of thing is there. Yeah, I mean, I think any card that is a one-card win the game, essentially. Like, Tinker is a combo piece that finds the other half of its combo piece. It's a one-card combo. (laughs) Exactly. Like, it's just, that that always tends to get, you know, pretty dangerous, pretty pretty broken. Um, But yeah, I I definitely think if Tinker is not the most broken, it is definitely in probably the top five. Yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely up there. I mean, I guess someone, and I'll be that guy right now, someone always is like, well, what about Contract from Below? And it's like, yeah, okay, fine. Contract from Below is probably the most busted card I've ever made. (laughs) But... Single mana draw seven cards is is powerful, but you can't play that one anywhere. So right, exactly. 
Um, taking taking a trip though from brokenness. Uh, let's go to to fun fun fair town. Rumor map excavator has been seeing a lot more play now that uh, Deathrite Shaman is gone. Uh, the old crucible on legs. Do you have any kind of story? How did this come into existence? Crucible Worlds has always been a card players have loved. Mm-hmm. And doing a throwback to it on a creature made a lot of sense, especially in Hour of Devastation. Maybe maybe not quite for Legacy, but we had, we had all this desert stuff going on where you would sacrifice your deserts and go into your graveyard. And being able to play them out of your graveyard made a lot of sense. There was plenty of graveyard synergies going on in the set. So we knew Crucible was a popular card, and we made a throwback to it. Now, I, we knew people would try this card out in Standard and maybe Modern. We didn't really know how far it would go, though. And part of the thing is... is in our minds, well, being a creature was a downside compared to an artifact. Crucible is easy to, it's a lot harder to kill. It's not a creature. You can't path it or swords it or whatever. But as it turns out, Green Sun Zenith, yes. <laughs> getting this is huge, right? You can't Green Sun Zenith for a Crucible, and you can't play one of these that you can then Zenith for. And I've seen so many green decks that play one Ramunap as Excavator. They've got four Zenith, and then if they ever have a Wasteland in their bin, they just search for their Excavator and lock their opponent out. So yeah. it's, it's an awesome card. And it, this is a really cool design, once again, where... It sees a little bit of play in standard and a little bit and a little more in eternal formats where it's a super cool place to go because you just have more lands with sacrifice abilities and more things that you want to be able to recur, fetch lands as well in eternal formats. And on top of that, you've got these tutors to go and find it. So I really love how this one turned out. And to me, this is a great example of a card you can make that will impact all formats and is especially going to hit Legacy. Maybe this is going to be my new example, actually. It's, it's Ooh, really good. maybe. Well, yeah, because also I think as far as like the tutoring aspect, too, is Crucible's biggest downside is the first Crucible is awesome. The second Crucible doesn't do anything. <laughs> you know, you only, you only need one. And so the fact that now Rumac can be Green Sun Zenith, uh, just means that it, it can be that silver bullet that just basically fits into almost any deck that's running a Green Sun package. Right. Uh, you know. You're almost always going to have a Wasteland in your deck anyway. So why not play one copy of this card? And then if you ever have a Wasteland, you're just going to win the game, you know? Exactly. Exactly. So yeah, I think that's an awesome, awesome card. And, uh, it, it definitely, was held down during the Deathrite Shaman uh, era, just because lands didn't stay in graveyards for very long. But uh, now that uh, Deathrite Shaman's out of the format, I've been seeing him pop up everywhere. Maverickless, uh, Aggro Loam, Sideboard of Lands decks. Like he, that, that card is uh, probably going to start seeing a lot more play and you know be very recognizable on the Legacy circuit. Yeah, and it's, it's a fun one. I'm always about promoting the fun things. And, well, granted... Wasteland locking your opponent is the most <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> fun. I'm glad this one at least is, is a little more interactable. I feel like as we're talking about with the braid, a lot of people just don't have main deck answers to cards like Crucible. Right. And most people have a path or something for the excavator. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, moving on. So after Hour of Devastation, uh, we had Commander 2017 come out. And uh, lots of cool cards in uh, the commander, but I, you know, like we've said it uh, on previous episodes that you've been on, uh, you know, Wizards really tries not to put, le- you know, new legacy playable cards in commander just because of you know the kind of chaos it can cause with uh, with the decks. Uh, was Cast kind of overlooked, or did you guys not think Cast would would is would see much legacy play? I think when we made it, we knew there was an outside shot. I mean, it reads incredibly powerful. It's a 4-mana yes. 3-4 flyer, which is, I mean, it's not winning any Noble Peace Prizes or anything, but it, it's fine. <laughs> Although if, if a creature that's attacking wins a Noble Peace Prize, I guess <laughs> yeah, something's wrong. That's say. more like Ramming Up <laughs> Excavator's Award. Anyway, though, the important part here is the ability on, on that body for 4-mana was like, well, there's always an outside shot. It's a card you'd look at and you think you could play. 
We definitely thought Kev had a chance at Cube, for sure, which is where it was being targeted at. Mm-hmm. I, but the fact that seeing a little bit of play in Legacy is like a one and two of, it's a, it looks like it's a really fun card, frankly. This is another it card is. where you get to play it, and you kind of cross your fingers, hope you can untap with it. And then if you do, you just get so much value. If you untap with the Kess, it is pretty hard to lose. It's just a value palooza. And I've had so much fun playing with, with this card. And I, so I was the lead designer of Commander 2017, and then I handed the set off to Brian Hawley, another designer in R&D, who was the set designer for it, made all the final tweaks and decisions. And he actually designed Kess in that, that set design portion. And I remember oh. seeing the card and thinking, isn't that just crazy? Can we make that? And I guess that should have been a sign maybe it was legacy playable. But I think this is a great example of, of where that is. And, you know, what we try and avoid is we don't want any card in a Commander deck or ancillary product to be a staple 4X all over Legacy. For example, I would say True Name Nemesis is a mistake because that really defined Legacy for a little while and it's not very much fun to play against on top of that. Mm. Where Kess is, hey, it's, it's a one or two of in a Grixis deck sometimes. It's not breaking anything. It's kind of almost a to taste spice. You can play yes. it or not. You don't feel like you're indebted to. And I'm really happy with how it turned out. Yeah. I mean, I got to get that non-foil version out, you know? <laughs> yeah, I know. People are waiting for that. I, yeah, I can't believe the controversy that came up over that is uh, people are very, uh, very touchy when it comes to foil cards and uh, legacy, especially in, uh, you know, the eternal formats that I feel there are two camps of people who either love foils, which is the camp I'm in, and those who just absolutely detest foils. <laughs> and we like having a lot of different ways to make our cards look cool. You know, we do things like full art promos and things like that. Um, personally, I'm always a big fan of foreign cards. I don't. Mm-hmm. Some people can't stand them, but I love having like an all Japanese deck or something. At least when I was a pro player, I would do that. Yeah. Um, although there was one time, so I remember when Future Sight came out a very long time ago, and I had the Dredge deck, and me and my friends basically had the Dredge deck before anyone else did. And unfortunately, by the time you could actually go play Dredge in Standard, um, everyone else had figured it out, so I didn't have a secret deck or anything. But there was about a good week where. Me and my friends had cracked the code, and we had this dredge deck that was doing these crazy things. I remember, actually, that's I, I got four Tarmogoyfs because I'm like, oh, this is a great sideboard card for my dred de- dredge deck because I'm going to mill a bunch <laughs> right. of cards, and then it will be big. So I was glad I had those later on. But anyway, um, I was trying to pick up cards for my deck, and I ended up acquiring four Chinese Bridge from Bullows, and that is definitely – a card you do not want to have in foreign. He's trying to <laughs> yeah. explain that card to people, especially when it's new, right? Now right. everyone maybe knows what's going on. Oh my where god, yeah. The card. And <laughs> They're like, you you're, you're lying tournament. to me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'd be in a tournament and I'd be playing my, my dredge deck and I'd, I'd be like, oh, I do all this stuff, make a bunch of zombies. And they're looking at my board and I'm like, and they're like, dude, you got nothing on your board. I'm like, oh, don't worry. There's this card in my graveyard, you see, that whenever a creature dies, I get a 2 2 zombie. And that's a snap judge call, right? You're not going <laughs> right. to believe anyone who tells you that. But uh, there you go. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> oh, by the way, it does nothing while it's in play or in my hands. Only when it's in my graveyard is it relevant. Although I will say, I have won an achievement. By doing this, I think I I feel like when you die, you're just gonna get like a list of all the achievements you got in your life, right? Like all the the, <laughs> the weird dubious achievements you've ever got, right? Like, oh man, you're the only guy to ever do a backflip on the Eiffel Tower, or, or whatever. <laughs> I don't know the case. But anyway, I think I might be among a very small percentage of people who has ever cast Bridge from Below correctly and had it be the right thing to do. <laughs> really? I, tell what is the story? How was it ever relevant to cast a Bridge from Below? Okay, so. When you sideboard, uh, so uh, in Extended, where I was playing Dredge at the time, 
what would happen is you'd go to sideboards and your opponent would sideboard in like a bunch of removal, a bunch of like leyline of the voids and stuff like that. And so some, but they'd sideboard in so many of these cards because no one wanted to lose to this deck. That sometimes you would just start beating your opponent down, right? You would have mm-hmm. like stinkweed imps and Golgari thugs. You'd just be hard casting <laughs> your narcomibas. I don't, I don't know how often this happens to you in Legacy, but like it does. Sometimes that happens. Sometimes oh, yeah. it's just like, all right, here come here come the narcomibas, right? And oh, yeah. every now and then you get there. And so there is one game where I was beating my opponent down with a pair of stinkweed imps, and like he mulliganed to five. He was he was searching for um, searching for some graveyard hate card. And he was, like, low on cards, and I'd spin attack with these two Stinkweed Imps over and over and over again. I think he, like, Tormo- had a Tormod script he got me with at one point or something. And so I'm just, I'm beating him down. He's going from, you know, 12 to 10 to 8. And he casts Engineered Explosives on 3 to deal with my Stinkweed Imps. And <laughs> <laughs> I've got Bridgerton below in my hand. I just slam it. I'm like, here it is. And because um, I, I didn't have any discard outlets to get into my right. graveyard. And so he had to, next turn, he cracks his explosives and he gets my two imps and my bridge from below. And then, uh, of course, I end up winning the game several turns later when I just have some normal creatures that die and I get zombie tokens. Yeah. So it was, it was absolutely incredible. Oh, that's um, awesome. In modern times, perhaps, I don't know if, I do not know if anyone has ever done this. Maybe a listener out there has unlocked this achievement. But you could always cast Bridge from Below for the Triple Devotion. Don't, uh, don't underestimate that. Oh, yeah, with uh, Gary. Uh, right, right. Yep. Just a little turn three Bridge from Below, turn four Bridge from Below, turn five Dark Merchant of, of Asphodel, or Grey Merchant of Asphodel. Uh, I mean, it's, it's no Necropotence, but what is, really? <laughs> What is what is? Uh, so moving on up next, I thought the flavor of the set is one of my favorite in a long time. I really enjoyed Ixalan. Um, I I mean, how can you go wrong with Pirates First Dinosaurs? Also, oh were my. you in were you in like a meeting? When did you first hear that like the theme is Pirates First Dinosaurs? And what did you think? <laughs> so originally, if you can believe it, it started off as a set really about vampires a lot of vampires and maybe a little bit of other influence maybe some maybe some dinosaurs were talked about but what we realized is we had a lot of different things that we felt could be part of a set but weren't enough for their own sets we had pirates as one thing we'd kind of put in the corner like yeah maybe we'll do a pirate set someday Mm -hmm. and then we had dinosaurs as a thing like yeah dinosaurs are cool we'll try and do them one day and we realized well neither of these things we we think are enough to do an entire set on but if we did a tribal set we could put in all these disparate tribes and have them make sense and um i mean i remember i was in the meeting where i heard we're doing pirates and dinosaurs i i distinctly remember this meeting it was <laughs> this meeting called world crafting which happened on thursdays where we talk about the future of our world and that was pitched and I'll, there was definitely some laughter and some debates as to like should we do this and to me it was just like sounds awesome let's do it right dinosaurs and pirates uh, and vampires and, we, and at that time we needed a, a third tribe it ended up being merfolk just for color balance reasons mm-hmm. um and I was, yeah, super happy with how that, how that turned out. It was, it was a blast. It's weird because you have these four very disparate tribes. But I think that's part of what makes this the scent really fun is why, what are all these tribes doing together hanging out? And then you've got the story. You've got this new world. Right. And we got to build the world from the ground up. So we got to find reasons for them all to be there. And, yeah, it's a little bit ridiculous. But, frankly, I think magic could do being a little more ridiculous sometimes. And, and I loved it. I feel it just makes this like perfect story of like the conquistador vampires, you know, coming across the the native tribes that are, you know, in tune with the dinosaurs. And of course, there's like these mystic merfolks that live in the rivers. And, you know, of course, you know, it's it's in the ocean. So, of course, we got to have pirates like it it felt like a uh, almost like Treasure Island's like adventure story. And I just felt like it, it really pulled it off like really well. 
Well, thanks. I appreciate that. And I hope one day we'll be able to go back to Ixalan and do a little more there. I mean, you know, we had this whole Golden City arc where someone won the Golden City at the end. Let's try and come back and see what's going on. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I loved I loved all the influences for, uh, for it. Uh, but also what we saw making a comeback with Ixalan is a mechanic I always really liked, uh, flip cards. Um, this was almost, this was kind of taboo back in the day. You know, you never mess with the back of a magic card. Um, and we finally saw, you know, with an Innistrad, uh, where we, we got flip cards and flip cards came back in a totally different way for Ixalan. Yeah. We never really done the transform into a land thing, or at least on, on Moss. And it was a really cool idea for this exploration because you're on this plane, you're exploring, you're trying to find new things and to kind of get that exploration feel, we wanted to have a mechanic that does that. It's not really a feel of the set if it's not in the, in the cards, of course. And so tribal was a big component of the set, but exploration was also a huge component of, of the set, a huge component. And this was a great way to get that through. And so we made a variety of cards and some more powerful than others, but definitely a highlight of them and one that's seen a lot of constructed play is Search for Azkanta. Yes, yes. That uh, it's really seen a lot of play in Legacy, but it, it's been seeing play pretty much in all formats. Uh, just really, I, I like it because it's this card that it feels like it, it just, it's a building effect and you have to always be aware of it out of the corner of your mind. It's like, all right, how many cards do they have in their le- graveyard? All right. They're at six. All right. I got to be careful because as soon as it flips, uh, it can just take over the game, um, with, you know, the ability, uh, which essentially lets you tutor the way, the way the decks are constructed. Yeah. I mean, it, it, there's a lot of great things going on here. First of all, it costs two mana. Yes. So coming down on turn two is huge, and we know that being a cheap card you can play on second turn and can define the game later on is going to be really important. Uh, second, it gives you that long game inevitability. In the short term, it helps you find the cards you need. Make sure you hit your land drops or finds the rats you're looking for, whatever. But it also gives you that long-term inevitability uh, when it transforms. And not to be underestimated, but the ability to, once again, make sure you hit those drops early is huge. But perhaps even more not to be underestimated is the fact that it turns into a land. Like, the one-mana mana acceleration can really matter sometimes, getting that extra yeah. land on board. Um, I mean, maybe more so in standard standard in Legacy. But I know, f- for me, getting that sixth land on time has been huge in a lot of occasions. For sure. So it's as the combination of helping out your early game, making sure your late game shines, giving you that mana boost, and only costing two mana, it really goes a long way. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and plus, it's just like a really uh, cool design. You get to take it out of the sleeve and flip it over. And it's like, oh, by the way, it has this entire backside of the card. <laughs> and the backsides look sweet, too. I love the frame we came up with it for that. Yeah. I love the uh, the promo ones of those with the uh, like the alternate backs where it was like the full like the full zoomed out map. Oh, I the thought, map. Yeah. The yeah. Map. Thought those were cool. Um, so, yeah, I mean, Search for Escanta, I mean, do you feel flip cards or something you're going to add into the rotation more often, or is it still kind of just like a once-in-a-blue-moon treat? You know, these days we kind of like doing them when we feel like it's appropriate. We just did one in Magic 2019, for example, with Bolas. We were looking, yes. at, looking at the set and thought, hey, this would be a great chance to make a transform card. Let's do it. So whenever it makes sense, we want to do them. But at the same time, if we did do them too often, it stops making the other ones as special. So we mm-hmm. want to space them out and only do them when it's truly appropriate or when there's a good reason to do it. So, you know, Ixlon, we had a good reason to do it. Magic 2019, we had a good reason to do it. In the future, if we've got a good reason to do it, I'm, I'm sure we'll bring them out again. Players do love them. And there's still a ton of design space there to, to explore. There's many things we haven't even scratched the surface with when it comes to these double face cards. Plus, I mean, got, we got to get to triple face cards somehow, you know? Yeah, <laughs> polyhedrals. Well, um, I don't know if you've seen them, actually. but So inside Wizards, there's a bunch of different games we make. 
but we make Magic, of course, and Dungeons and Dragons. But another game we make, and maybe a little lesser known, is Duel Masters. And Duel mm-hmm. Masters is a game that only exists in Japan, but we actually make it here in Seattle and then translate it and release it in Japan. And it's one of the biggest card games in Japan, actually. Really? Um, I, I don't know if you ever had a chance to play it or not, but it's, it's quite a bit of fun and uses a lot of magic stuff. It's sort of like magic, but where you can play any card from your land face down as a – or, excuse me, you can play any card from your hand face down as a land of that color. Okay, so it's, yeah. it's actually deeply strategic. Like if you've ever had thought about how to play that magic or played mental magic or something, mm-hmm. you could lose the game on turn one by putting the wrong card down. Oh, so even yeah. though it's targeted at kids, there's a lot of deep strategy there. Yeah. Um, and anyway, for this game, we actually did make triple face cards. And you're probably wondering, Gavin, how is that possible? And what they are is they're a little larger than normal, but they actually unfold. Which is super Whoa. cool. <laughs> yeah, isn't that mind blowing? If you listeners out there, if you search triple face cards, I think Matt Tayback put a video on his uh, Tumblr of how these work, and they're super awesome. So go out there, take a look. And the one trick with them, of course, is because they are opening cards, they're a little thicker than normal Magic cards, so you can't actually put them in sleeves into your deck. So you would have to either make them checklist card only, or the way that Duel Masters does it is they're actually cards that instruct you to go get them from outside the game. So you can't ever put them into your deck. It'll just say. Uh, search your basically your command zone. It's called something different there, but for a card that costs four or less and is a triple face card, and put it into play. And so there's that's how you get them into play in that game. But there's all kinds of space there and magic we could use someday. And you know that would be pretty mind blowing to see a triple face card. So yeah. who knows? Who knows? What you could do, what I was thinking when you said triple face card, is you have a regular flip card that when it flips over is then uh, the Kamigawa flip cards. Right, that had right, like, of course. Of course. <laughs> that like once you like checked off certain boxes that you turned it around and it was a different card. That's you can you can throw that in unglued four. Just you know, the most complicated flip cards. <laughs> you have to give it morph two for extra value. You know? Yes. Like, yeah, morph first put it. it face down and then you turn it over and then you turn it back. <laughs> oh man, that would be perfect. Like how many different ways can we turn this card <laughs> orientation matters yes hell, that would be awesome <laughs> i remember we actually had a big debate internally about if we could we could do manifest and transform cards in the same standard together because would people just be confused if you told them to manifest the top card of their library and it's a double face card like, what, what, you know? <laughs> um, eventually we ended up doing it of course because we had both concentric gear block and innistrad block out within a short period of time but uh mm-hmm. yeah it's pretty funny <laughs> that is funny um also from ixalan uh what some would say is a sideboard card ended up seeing a lot of main deck play in the prison list uh sorceress spyglass kind of a uh take a merger of peak and pithing needle yeah i mean for me this is just efficient it's one more mana you get pithing needle but you also get to look at their hands, so it gives you a little bit of, bit of information, which is always nice. But more importantly, it helps you name the right card. Yes. And, you know, in Legacy, naming the right card can be the difference between winning and losing. And being able to do that with your Sorcerer's Spyglass is, I mean, a, a, gigantic, a gigantic piece of that card. Additionally, with Pithy Needle, so I don't know how many times you've done this, Jerry, but I've Pithy Needled a lot of fetch lands in my day. Just cross your fingers, you know? <laughs> right. And with Sorcerer's Spyglass, sometimes you play it, you see, look at their hand, you see they've got two flooded strands hanging out there, and then you just get them. Oh, yeah. And well, that's what I love with Sorcerer's Spyglass. I've gone like ancient, t- to, like turn one on the play, ancient tomb, Sorcerer's Spyglass, look at their hand, it's like, oh, you have three polluted deltas in your hands. I'll name polluted delta. Get just this uh, awesome three for one right out of the gate. Yeah, there was some Grand Prix a very long time ago where Gerard Fabiano is playing, he's playing Affinity 
and he's playing against his opponent who's sideboarding Kataki Wars Wage. Mm-hmm. And his opponent just snap keeps his hand. He like sees the seven cards, is like, yep, definitely keeping this hand. No, no thoughts about it. And so Gerard just knows that he's 100% has a Kataki in his hand. So his opponent plays the land, says go. And Gerard is like, all right, turn one pithy needle flooded strand. And his opponent just, it turns out at the end of the game, so his opponent doesn't play any more lands and he loses. And it turns out at the end of the game, he reveals his hand and he's got three flooded strands in his hand. Oh. And he just named the right thing on the first turn. Jeez. So Jeez. one thing about Sorcerer's Spyglass is you can't find it with one of my favorite cards, Trinket Mage. Mm. But other than that, it's pretty awesome. Like you said, you can play it at turn one off Ancient Tomb and still get that out there. And it's a huge player. I mean, this is seen playing everything from standard all the way through vintage so i mean anything like this which shuts your opponent off of a specific card is pretty huge yeah well what's funny with sorcerer spyglass is costing one more is actually an advantage for the card over pithing needle because it sees play in the chalice of the void decks and the chalice of the void decks want to be playing chalice on one which means they can't play pithing needle otherwise it just gets they counter it themselves um, and then the, you know, the chalice decks are set up to have power out two mana on the first turn so they can get that turn one chalice, uh, which just makes it natural for them to also be able to cast a turn one sorcerer spyglass. Um, oh, absolutely. So, yeah. So it's funny how like what you like at first glance as a disadvantage turns out to be an advantage. Magic's funny like that, isn't it? The number of times you think something would be bad and it's actively <laughs> really strong. Right. Or like for a time in Legacy, like being a four drop was an advantage because it meant it couldn't be abrupt decayed. <laughs> yeah. Or, or, or counterbalance being another classic example of that. Yeah, exactly. Um, now, this card, I wasn't involved in the design of this card, but if I remember correctly, this card was designed knowing it could be a potential modern Legacy shot, and so I'm glad it made it in. Yeah, definitely. Well, I remember at Hascon, um, when we met you in person, you asked us, you know, is there anything from Ixalan that you think might be legacy playable? And we're like, Sorcerer Spyglass. Like, this was even before we recognized Search for Ascanta, because I think it was like the spoiler, like the full spoiler, like the set hadn't even come out yet. It was just the full spoiler. Uh, and Sorcerer Spyglass was the one that really caught our attention. Oh, I'm glad to see it made it. Yeah. Uh, and then following Ixalan, got the sequel, Rivals of Ixalan. Um, two other kind of cool cards. Up first, I like uh, Direfleet Daredevil, the reverse Snapcaster Mage. Now, how much play has this been seeing in Legacy? Uh, it's It's been seeing a little bit. People are still trying it out. So uh, there's a red-white Death and Taxes list out there that runs like Magus of the Moon uh, and uh, you know Blood Moon as well. And it also will run a Dire Fleet Daredevil uh, to get some value. I actually lost at GP Seattle again in a side event against red white death and taxes uh because uh they had uh dire fleet daredevil and i I was playing grixis delver at the time and they like just cast dire fleet daredevil and like got to recast one of my fatal pushes and it just blew me out so i think i saw one of the best dire fleets ever the other day so we were we were playing cube draft and um it's someone's basically drafted a quick red deck Versus their opponent playing, like, Esper control artifacts, okay? Mm -hmm. And the red deck goes, you know, turn one creature, turn two creature, attacking, trying to get damage in. And the opponent on turn four has an artifact in play, and he casts the aforementioned Tinker to go find Blightsteel Colossus, right? So, of course, that's that's probably going to be that, right? And then um, he's looking at the board, looking at the board, looking at the board, and... He chooses to oust his opponent's creature. Like, you know, let's let's just get it out of the way. You know, maybe yeah. you could like maybe you could deal enough, enough. It was a young pyromancer. He's like, well, maybe you can generate enough value by playing some spells to to you know make this blight seal not kill you in two attacks. Maybe you can beat me with me, whatever. 
Mm-hmm. And this opponent, of course, untaps, smiles, draws his card, <laughs> drops Dire Fleet, and ousts the opponent's Black Steel Colossus, which is totally savage for a number of reasons. Oh, man. First of all, he's going to draw the Black Steel Colossus in two turns. So it's like, it, it's better than Swords of Plowshares. <laughs> right. Because he has to draw Black Steel Colossus, and he which gains a three life instead of 11 life, right? So <laughs> yeah. that's pretty insane. It's just the sequence of events that's happening. Like, his opponent has to be like, ah, oh, well, I'll just take this risk and oust this card. Um, that's maybe the best dire fleet i've ever seen in my life oh, if you're yeah. out there i'm curious if you're listening to this show and you have seen a really insane dire fleet i would love 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 to hear about the story about it so tweet at me tweet at the show let us know and uh, yeah keep us well, in the loop on that yeah well it's like it's rare enough to have your creature stolen in eternal formats like creature stealing exists but it's not really it's never really put on cards powerful enough for the format and it's almost never you think about like oh i better watch out about the cards in my graveyard in case they get used against me like that is an effect that is very rare for uh for legacy players yeah, or you don't have to think about it that often, but, uh, well, I guess now you do, right? And that's why yeah. playing one or two of these is great, because it's not enough that everyone's going to be thinking about it all the time, but just enough that every now and then you can just get them with it. Exactly. Awesome. Um, do you know, like, how this car was designed? Like, was it, like, a conscious attempt at making a new Snapcaster Mage, or how, how did it really come about? Well, you know, we've talked in R&D a lot about how we think Snapcaster Mage is probably actually red. I mean, it's a blue card, of course, but... If we were to do it again, it would probably be a red card. Mm-hmm. And I think that discussion probably helped inspire this card in particular. I remember seeing it, thinking it was cool. I played with it. I don't know how it was designed in particular, but it's very much heralds from that family. And I don't know. It's cool to play with your opponent's stuff. I enjoy can you, it. Can you talk about that? So I, I don't, I've never really thought about that. Like uh, Snapcaster Mage as a red card, like playing instant and sorcery from your graveyard being kind of a, a red colored ability. Well, yeah, you know, you've seen it with things like Past in Flames, for example. Mm-hmm. It, it, ironically, Past in Flames is in the same set as Snapcaster Mage. Yeah. And one is a blue card that lets you play place out of your graveyard. The other is a red card that lets you play uh, cards out of your graveyard again. And I, I, it just seems like something that's more in red color pies. We've talked more and defined what red wants to do. It likes reusing stuff out of its graveyard. And frankly, blue has reusing spells out of its graveyard. And frankly, blue has a wide swath of, of color pie stuff it can do. And while Snapcaster Mage could be blue, I think it could also be red. And generally, if there's a tie between blue and red being able to do something, we tend to like to give it to red a little more just because red gets less to do. Red is always looking for new and interesting things to do because it just hasn't had a lot historically, where blue has had so much of it historically. So that's why you started to see things like copying spells in blue. You know, you've had dual Caster Mage and we moved to Reverberate. Um, that's why you see things like polymorph in red over blue. We've started to make that change as well. Mm-hmm. Um, we saw a Hazret's Undying Fury, which is like a Mind's Desire in red. So we're trying to piece some of this stuff into red to give it more stuff to do, more stuff, stuff to do with, with spells. And I think, I mean, you could make it as a blue card still. It's not, I'm not saying that it's out of color pie as Snapcaster Mage. But it feels like it could very much be a red card. And if we were to do it again today, I think there's a good chance it would end up as a red card, maybe with, without Flash. Um, it's possible you could argue that the Flash is what makes it blue. But at least the version without Flash would certainly be red. Yeah. Which Dire Fleet, of course, doesn't have Flash. Right. Uh, now that you kind of put it, I, I can definitely see that. Also, what I like is that, you know, it's a form of card advantage. And that's something that blue has in spades and red kind of lacks usually. Is it a, Absolutely. Is, is, you know, a way to just get more value out of your cards. So, yeah. Huh. Red loves that short term kind of like, okay, I'm going to do this now. And, you know, that's where you get this like ten, what we call the impulsive draw, the exile yeah. your top card and you can play it this turn. It feels very much in that kind of family of things. 
Exactly. Um, so who knows? When we do Planner Chaos 2, maybe we'll get Red Snapcaster Mage. Ooh, boy. Don't uh, worry. It's, it's not going to happen. <laughs> I, I, think, I think four Snapcaster Mages per deck is about enough. <laughs> I guess I guess that is enough. Uh, next in Rivals, though, is a card that I, f- I feel is cool. We've, re- we've been seeing it uh, pop up a lot in Dredge decks and a couple Reanimator decks. Silent Gravestone. Which right, so I- this is funny, right? Because it's a... It is a card that normally the space hoses graveyard decks. If you look at Progenitus, it's like, great, hose the graveyard deck. But the first line here actually means, no, 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 don't mess with my graveyard. Yeah, exactly. So you, you I feel this is kind of a, a dangerous realm to play with because it, this could have been really close to being just busted as if it was just like it, cards and graveyards like have hexproof where if I can target my graveyard, but you can't target my graveyard, I feel that's where you just get into busted territory. Um, but even still, decks like Reanimator and Dredge have ways to, you know, abuse the graveyard without having to directly target it. Just like blanket cards uh, like uh, Exhum is able to get around it. Right. And of course, in Dredge, I mean, you can't. Dread return anything back with this in play, but you can still hit all your Narcomibos. You can still dredge willy nilly. You can still flash back your, you know, faithless looting if you need to. Stuff like that. You bring yeah. back your Icarids. Exactly, exactly. Um, so yeah, I mean, do you, it, when this card was being designed, was ever you know, I feel messing with the graveyard is another kind of uh, dangerous area for magic card design, where it, it's it's easy to kind of go overboard and make something that's just busted. We want to make sure that there's always answers to things in standard, which is where a lot of the stuff comes from. And coming off of a graveyard-heavy block like Amonkhet and coming off of a, you know, even Innistrad was not that much earlier. We wanted to make sure that there were some answers lying around for these cards players could have. And making a strong graveyard answer like this was a good way to approach it. Um, I know some people have told me they wish this card was even a little bit stronger, but it seems like it's in a, in a pretty good spl- place overall and definitely was a way to help hate out some of those Amonkhet strategies and make sure it wasn't all about recursion without just playing a one-man artifact and shutting it down. The, the, there's such a narrow line with hate cards because if you end up on one side of the of the line, you just have an unplayable hate card. There's lots of hate bears, for example, that are intended to be hateful on something and just don't see any play because they're just not good enough. But on the other side of the card, you get something hyper-efficient that just crushes your opponent's strategy. You know, you get yeah. a, a stony silence or a, a chill where it's like, okay, well, why do I even – I can't play magic anymore. Right. And so finding that space in the middle is so hard. And I feel like Silent Gravestone is, is pretty much there. It's, it's in a really good spot in the middle. Yeah. I'd like to see the second ability be just a little bit cheaper, but I'm not complaining by any means. <laughs> right. It could have been three mana maybe, you know, like there's there's little tweaks we could have made, but you know, it, it's in it's in within the it's, it's within the narrow band of a narrow band. Exactly. Which, so I'm I'm happy that it's there and I finding hate cards put in that spot is is tricky. Definitely. Definitely. I I think you did a good job. It was good. I'm excited though to move on to the next set to come out, which was I think this is actually hard because uh, the second half of this list, it's you know, it starts uh, firing in all cylinders. But battle bonds, I know you had a you know a, a big hand in this, but I really want to talk to you about it because I feel this set kind of came out of nowhere, especially for legacy players, and we got so many toys out of this set. It was amazing. So all the times earlier in the show where I said I don't know for sure the history of how this card is put together, <laughs> Battle Bond is not that case. I can tell you with extreme intimate detail how every single card in that set came to be into the, in the set, and all the cards that we want to talk about for Battle Bond, I can give you pretty deep stories on. So, and, and we intended, by the way, we did intend there to be some cards here that would be legacy playable, yeah. or at least cards you could think about for legacy. And I'm glad that that they've made it. 
Yeah, which is awesome. I mean, the it's been having huge effects uh, on Legacy, you know, the especially the first couple we talked about. Um, but I just kind of want to get a, a little bit of the backstory, just like how Battle Bonds came into existence in the first place. Like what what gave the team this idea? Um, you know, what kind of role does Battle Bond fit in overall Magic? So Battle Bond is our innovation release for the year, and we do one of these each year. So we, a conspiracy being an example of these in the past, unstable being an example of these in the past. And we wanted to do something new this time. We, did, we didn't just want to do Conspiracy 3. It would be way too soon to do another unset. And we're looking at different ways we could do this kind of innovation set, something we hadn't done before. And a really popular format is Two-Headed Giant, um, or at least really popular when it's played. It's just not played very much. At mm-hmm. pre-releases, we run Two-Headed Giant, and it's always pretty successful. We hear a lot of good things about it, a lot of people coming in and pairing up the play. But it's not really played anywhere else. And so Sean Main, who's no longer at Wizards, but um, was a fantastic designer, probably still is a fantastic designer, where he is now, and he had the idea of doing a Two-Headed Giant-themed set. And it really made a lot of sense because there's a, it's a great chance to both play alongside your friends. I love playing with people. I love you know playing alongside someone else to have this great two-on-two game. Mm-hmm. And it's also a great way to bring in people who haven't played in a while, bring in friends or family who might not be as enfranchised in Magic, to just be like, hey, I'll be here for you. Let's work through this together. And so yeah. that was kind of the initial idea. That's how the set came to be. Now, we knew when we were making this set, we wanted to make sure it had a wide appeal. I want to make sure there was a, was a lot of different audiences we could hit with it because, of course, we wanted people to draft it and have fun there. But if you're not drafting it, or if you're not really someone who's interested in two-headed giant draft or anything like that, we couldn't just make a bunch of cards that, that at Rare and Mythic that cared about two-headed giant gameplay because, well, no one's going to use those for anything. We're not expecting people, people to play Battle Bond and then go play two-headed giant constructed. It's very much a, a limited environment. So we made a lot of the rares and mythics really targeted toward Commander, Cube, Legacy, stuff like that. And there's, there's a few cards we slipped in to do, do just that. In fact, we even had... Um, a mini team. So what we often do when we work on sets is at some point during the design process, we'll split off into little mini teams and say, hey, you f- this team focuses on this, this team focuses on this, and we bring in people from outside of the set design team to work on pieces of, of the set. And so for my team, we... For my Battle Bond team, we had a number of cool mini teams. We had a flavor mini team where they made some cool top-down cards. That's where cards like Last Person Standing came from. We had a mechanics mini team where we worked on some of the new partners. Uh, but one of the mini teams was a constructed rares and mythics mini team that was led by Ian Duke, a fantastic <laughs> designer with an eye toward competitive play. Uh-huh. And him and his team really crunched into making some cards that might have a chance at cube or potentially legacy. And they made a few that, that do. Yeah, awesome. I mean, I want to stop beating around the bush because people make fun of me because I it's my darling card. I actually, when it was spoiled, I tweeted you, uh, you know, my birthday isn't for another couple months. <laughs> uh, Arcane Artisan, my favorite card from Battle Bond. Uh, this card, this card is probably seeing the most play in Legacy right now. Um, it's basically become a stock mainstay of all the sneak and show, uh, sideboard cards, uh, just because it draws cards and it makes huge creatures. What were you thinking, Gavin, when this came into existence? Right. This is both, <laughs> this is a uh, cost cheating at its finest right, <laughs> right here, right? It draws cards and cheats on cards. Like if, if someone had just like shown me this, like, like some, like handed me, slipped an envelope under my door and it's like, uh, spoilers from an upcoming set. I would look at this and I'm like, they would never make this. This is way too broken. <laughs> you should have tried it when it was two mana. Oh my god, don't do that to me. Two mana Arcane Artisan? <laughs> so, the story with Arcane Artisan, so you know how I mentioned we had this mini team where yes. 
um, where we made all these legacy and vintage cards. Oh yeah, yeah. It didn't come from that at all. Um, what? So <laughs> really? <laughs> so, with the story here is on my teams. I always like to have somebody who isn't as entrenched in R and D. Someone from outside the department. And so I brought in someone named Michael Yicha, who also is sadly no longer at Wizards, but he was an excellent designer to have on the team. And he had a lot of really fresh, really exciting ideas. And he pitched me this card pretty early on in the process. And as a top-down flavorful thing, it was cool. It was an illusionist that made illusions, and when it went away, you, you know, the illusions went away. And I mm-hmm. loved it. Um, and so I put it in the set. It almost never changed with the exception of some mana cost tweaking throughout the whole whole process. And with that said, we did knew this w- we did know this would be a chance at a legacy or vintage card potentially. It is cost cheating, does get stuff into play, but it's also a little fair in how it does it because if you kill this off, the whole the rest of the stuff all goes away. So it's and it takes a turn to activate. It's not like show and tell where you just pay three mm-hmm. mana, it comes into play, no no strings attached. It's right. not like sneak attack where you can play and activate it and then it's in the same turn. You have to play your Arcan Artisan, then you have to activate it next turn, and then the turn after, if a creature doesn't have haste, you can finally attack with it. So it takes some effort. But we knew there was an outside chance it would show up in Legacy, and personally, I think it's pretty cool. I've, I've seen it, like two or three of these guys show up in sideboards of show-and-tell decks, and I'm really happy with, with how that turned out. Yeah. Um, I remember, so when it was first spoiled, uh, all <laughs> I could tell it was going to be big because all the sneak-and-show players were losing their minds. Like, this card's ridiculous. This is awesome. And all the non-sneak-and-show players were like, this card's garbage. What are you guys talking about? And then it started showing up in tournament sideboards, and it it's this card, it really just it sneaks up on you um the fact that a sneak up on you (laughs) (laughs) uh uh, but no like the fact that it's tokens is actually a benefit because one of the biggest uh hate cards against sneak and show is containment priest and containment priest says if a non-token creature would enter the battle oh that's wild i didn't even think about that That that's awesome so like the note like i've been i played at uh sg worcester i was playing against miracles and my opponent uh like flashes in a containment priest like oh that's cute it's like arcane artisan make an emmer cool that's fun <laughs> have you had anyone flash in containment priest in response to activating your arcane artisan yet oh yeah yeah no oh, that's, that, that's like that's so what, good that, when you yeah. put the token out and they're like dude do you know what my card does you're like, actually do you know what my card does <laughs> right exactly exactly um, there was this uh, i mean i i do love that feeling where you get to get your opponent there was this deck i played in standard um where you would play platinum angel and then you would try and get as many Pact of Negations in your hand as possible. And then you would Pact whatever they played next. Yep. And so you would slam – so the game, like, 80% of the time would go like this, game one. Turn seven Platinum Angel. They untap. They try and kill it. You smugly play Pact of Negation. You untap. You draw your card. Your opponent's like, ah, got you. Ha, you lost. See? I, I'm smart. I, I called you on your thing. And you're like, actually, um, I don't lose the game, so yeah. it's going to be okay. I was, can't. I, it was a great feeling. I was a different person back then. It was a good feeling. <laughs> the deck was awesome. not good, but the satisfaction I got from my opponent telling me I lost the game when I didn't was, was very nice. Oh, exactly. Exactly. Uh, but yeah, I'm very happy for Arcane Artisan. So uh, what, what was his name? I'm going to have to send him a gift basket. Michael Yichow. <laughs> yeah, I can, if you want, I can give you his email address. If you want to literally send him a, I can tell, I have his address. If you want to send him a gift basket, let me know. If you want to send him hate mail, uh, his address is not, not that one. 
I'll, I'll take up a collection from the Sneak and Show community because people are very, very excited for it. And, um, and it's a great example of just a cool top-down resonant design that ended up making its way into the legacy. So yeah. It, I mean, now when you put it that way, like I didn't really put together the flavor of it just because when I just looked at it, all I saw was the constructed playability. But that is just a really cool flavor of the card uh, that it's you know putting illusions of these cards into play. And that's why they disappear when it goes away. Right. Right, it's a Master Illusionist, I think was the playtest name. Oh, nice. Uh, going on, one of my favorite cards, flavor-wise, just because I'm such a big fan of the original, uh, getting one step closer to finishing the cycle, Brightling has been showing up in uh, Death and Taxes lists. Yeah, we're just the black one away, right? We're one one ling away from finishing the whole shebang. Mm-hmm. So, someday, someday. So, with Brightling, I-, I was looking to fill some holes with rares in my set. And I knew I wanted to make some cards that would be exciting, be memorable, get people really, really stoked about the set. So I went to a great resource in Magic R&D. I went to Mark Rosewater. And I was like, Mark, what is a cycle that people always wish there was more of, but we haven't quite finished yet? And without thinking, without hesitation, he said, <laughs> lings. And I was like, oh, of course. It makes a lot of sense. We could do and do another, another ling here. And so I thought for a while about white or black. And I looked at my holes in my set. And white made more sense. Plus, um... White is going to be easier to make work in a teammate set because black is probably going to do mean things and mm-hmm. white's going to do things that maybe helped you or your, or your teammate out. So white made a lot of sense here. Yep. And so then we started making versions and shopping them around and trying to figure out what to do with uh, with Brightling. And it was tricky because getting a fi- five-mana creature that with that ability set to be strong was, was quite difficult. Morphling, of course, was huge when it came out. I mean, that was a, a defining card at the time. But yeah. now, Morphling does not not shake any tail feathers. You know, it's a five mana, three, three, that costs you more mana to do anything with. It's not really right. going off the doors. And so we tried a bunch of things to try and get it to work. And originally, actually, the version granted its abilities to it and another target creature. So it was like it was helping out other other creatures, right? It was me and another creature gained Lifelink till end of turn, for example, which was bananas and limited, by the way, because you would just spam Lifelink on everyone's creatures. <laughs> yeah. Um, and you're playing two at a giant, of course. But so we were talking about what to do, and eventually I hit upon, well, what if we made it cost less? Because Morphlings had always cost five up until this point. Yeah, but we could make one that costs less, and that's what white does. That's white's influence. White is all about having cheap creatures. And I argued someday if we did a black one, if we made it cost more than five mana, then the, then you could just look at that the cycle as a whole, and so you see the whole time that it wasn't it wasn't all about being five. The black one had a different mana cost. It had something higher or a four mana card or something, right? Right. Um, so, with Brightling, we moved it down to three, made a three mana three three. It was supposed to be a shot at cube. I thought maybe you would have a really outside shot at legacy, but probably not. And to see it being played in Death and Taxes is really cool. And this is once again a card that I think is pretty fair, is, isn't breaking anything in legacy, but it's like, oh, you can play a few of them and it's totally reasonable and it's neat to see it show up and neat to see this new card impact the format. Yeah, definitely. And it's seeing more play also uh, in other lists. Like I know uh, Jeremy Tibbetts, uh, Top, uh, I want to say 16 or top 8 in an SCG event playing uh, Blue-White Stoneblade with Brightling in it. Uh, oh, that's cool. That's yeah. cool. Uh, yeah, which I, I, I was intrigued because uh, he only had like five white sources in the entire deck. And uh, Brightling is a very white, white intensive uh, creature. Did he have Aether Vial? Probably, probably not in a Stoneblade deck, right? No, no Aether Vial. But also, I mean, not even just as far as casting it, just like you, repeatedly using Brightling's abilities. That takes up a lot of right. white mana. Well, you know, sometimes you just got to cast it and strike fear into your opponent's heart. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, And the third card I wanted to talk about from Battle Bonds, another white card, uh, another throwback, Arena Rector. 
throwback to Academy Rector. Yeah, this one actually did come straight out of that mini team. This is one that Ian came up with, and I loved immediately. It blew everyone's socks off. I think this might have actually won or at least made top five of our internal rare pool when we did a rare pool of the cards in the set. And to, I saw this card and was like, can we make this? Is this reasonable? But it's the guy who's supposed to be my balance expert telling me we can make this, so I guess <laughs> yeah. we could probably try making it, right? And this is exactly in the range, once again, of a tutoring and cost cheating, so a very dangerous card to make. But because there are fewer Planeswalkers in the game, it does mean that we get a pretty good idea of what it can possibly get, as opposed to enchantments, which could be a very wide range of things since Magic's Inception. Right. And Planeswalkers also have answers to them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know that that you can come down with, as opposed to like, oh well, I go get omniscience with Academy Rector. Now I'm just going to kill you immediately. There's nothing you, you can do. Or, um, or convergence of worms. Jeez, that card is the bane of my existence. <laughs> no sandworm convergence. <laughs> yeah, sandwich. Sandworm oh, jeez. Yep. Yeah. Do people play that in Legacy? Is that happening right now? Uh, so there's this deck called Nix Fit. Oh, the Nyx Fit deck. Yes, yeah. I have seen this. Yep. Okay, okay. I didn't realize people were playing Sandworm Convergence. That's awesome. It's a sweet card. Oh, yeah. Well, it's because it wrecks Sneak and Show. <laughs> it's like Sneak and Show just literally can't beat that card. Oh, yeah. Emrakul can't attack into a Sandworm Convergence. That's yeah, for sure. Neither can Grizzlebrands. <laughs> and eventually, So you're just sitting there staring at them, and they eventually just make enough worms to overwhelm your Emrakul. <laughs> seen- I, love Le- I love Legacy. The cards that see play, you're like, why does this see play? <laughs> right. Okay, sure, I guess. One, well, yeah, one Sandworm Convergence. Sign me up. Um, but, and uh, so anyway, we, you know, we played it a little bit. We talked about what decks could go in and uh, it stayed pretty much the same. The only thing I did was I gave it a, a second toughness, of course, to herald back to the old Academy Rector. And then I, I made it exile itself from your graveyard to also herald back to the old Academy Rector. But I kept it pretty much the same from that mini team's design. And I love it. I mean, I've seen people try and play this with flash, right? Turn to flash or Rector. Ooh, I didn't so, see that. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. So there's a lot of fun stuff you can do there. Um, yeah. Oh, I think it's cool just because uh, I feel it kind of brings a little bit of balance because a lot of the older cheat spells, Show and Tell, uh, Eureka, um, they were printed before Planeswalkers existed. So you're right. not able to cheat Planeswalkers into play. So as far as as far as far cheating into play goes, there are very few options to get planes, uh, Planeswalkers into play. Actually... Eureka does work because I think a Eureka is any permanent, but the the point still stands as far as like things that specifically allow you to cheat uh, planeswalkers is few and far between. Right, not being able to show and tell planeswalkers—that's a pretty common thing. Right, I've seen a lot of people try and show and tell in a Jace yes, to, to deal with their opponent's Emrakul. That does not work. Right, they're like, oh, I'll just show in my Jace and then I'll bounce it. It's like, no, sorry, <laughs> no, you won't. Why? Why are all the types called out? Who knows? But here we are. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, but yeah, I think also Arena Rector is one of those cards that I feel just gets more powerful over time. Um, like as we get more cool, huge nickel bolas planeswalker cards, <laughs> right? Or, uh, or just you know, Karn liberated is yeah, a pretty good one too. Karn liberated, nickel bolas, Ugin, um, yeah, arena rector. I feel uh, like the the Nyx fit deck is uh, is sees play. Um, they're still going with the original academy rector just because you know there's just more options with enchantments. But I feel eventually we'll hit this critical mass where just arena rector will just be better in its own right. Yeah, maybe someday. And, you know, if it, once again, if he's a little bit of play, it's not breaking anything, that's awesome. I'd love to see Arena Rector show up a little bit. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Plus, uh, Cabal Therapy needs a new best friend now that uh, Gataxian Probe is gone. 
Oh, yeah, yeah. Man, therapy with a rector. Whew, that's nice. <laughs> yes. Actually, can we let's sidebar for a second? Because when I uh, when we got dinner, the, the Leaving a Legacy group dinner with you out in uh, uh, Seattle, uh, we were, you asked us, you know, what cards do you think uh, should be banned in Legacy? And kind of around the table, the two resounding cards were Gataxian Probe and Deathrite Shaman. Um, and I know you personally uh, felt that, you know, Gataxian Probe was the one that should get the axe. Are you, are you kind of happy to see that uh, that leave the format? Well, you know, my thing with, with Gataxian Probe, and, and I'll say, by the way, that this, these decisions are, ma- are made by play design. So yes, they, Gavin, they, has, they Gavin has no decision as far as the ban and restriction list I mean, goes. I, I get a little bit of input. I get talked about it. But at the end of the day, it's them who really help control the formats. Um, with Gataxian Probe, to me takes away one of the fun parts of magic, which is not knowing what's in your opponent's hand. And that's a really huge part of the game, that bluffing aspect, that mystery aspect. And the fact that Probe does it for basically nothing, while also enabling a bunch of other strategies, I've just never liked the card very much. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if I said that it should be banned, but just that I, I have a personal distaste for that yes, card. Yes, sorry. Um, Did not mean to put words in your mouth. <laughs> no, 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 it's fine. Uh, but uh, so to see it gone from Legacy, that makes me happy. I'm sorry if you like taxing Probe out there. On the flip side, I am a... I mean, I've played a lot of Death Rite Shaman in my time, so I've really enjoyed playing that card. But it was probably time for it to go. So, yeah, for sure. I actually w- helped helped with the design of Death Rite Shaman, but it was very different when when I was working on it. <laughs> it was two mana and oh, has a different suite of effects. So. Yeah, can we like can we get that on the record? Because I hear people ask about that all the time, and I I, I like being able to give them the backstory that I that I got from you. But I feel uh, before it is uh, fully receded into the history of Legacy, what what was the backstory of how? Deathrite Shaman came into existence. Well, right. So the original Deathrite Shaman was a, I believe it was a two-mana creature. And I don't have it in front of me right now. I don't have my notes. But it was a two-mana creature, and it could exile a, a bunch, three different card types still. And I think it was only from your graveyard. Pretty sure it was only from your graveyard. And it was mm-hmm. a 1-1 one, one for uh, two-mana, I think, that could do this. And the effects were a little different, and I, I can't recall what they all were. But the idea was it was like a junk troll, a junk trawler, right? It would look through the, the junk that was in your graveyard, and it was like, well, I'll, you know, fashion a nice headdress out of this creature or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but then to help hate on some of the graveyard strategies, it was it moved to be able to target your opponent's stuff out of their graveyard. Because, uh, remember, you're coming off of uh, Innistrad there. And then it... it at some point, I got moved down to one mana. I don't remember why that happened. Um, but probably, I think we're trying to target it for Constructed, which we hit on. Yes. Um, <laughs> but the, the, the one to me that is always the most striking in my mind is the second toughness, mm-hmm. because that, that toughness has mattered a whole lot. Oh, yeah. Like, you wouldn't think a second toughness matters a lot, but on this creature, in addition to just blocking random 1-1s, that toughness has mattered so much with you know removal spells and minus and minus 1 effects and all this stuff. And the reason it's there is because at the time in Standard... Um, we were a little worried about Lingering Souls and the Tokens decks coming out of Innistrad. Mm-hmm. So we made a bunch of one-damage spells to deal with them. We made Electricery in Ravnica. We made um, – there's a, the human uh, – is it Staticaster yep. that deals one damage to a creature? So a lot of cards in Ravnica that were one toughness got a second toughness added onto them. So we'd be hating on the cards from the previous year but not keeping the cards from this year down, from the Ravnica year down. And that's how Deathrite Shaman ended up with the second toughness, which of course – well. The second toughness isn't the thing that put it over the top. I'm not saying it wouldn't wouldn't still be insanely powerful as a one one. Um, it certainly didn't didn't hurt having that second toughness. What I what I find is that second toughness is almost single handedly responsible for goblins disappearing from legacy because 
it was oh, lackey. Yeah, goblin lackey is just the most important part of the goblin's deck, and deathrite shaman was another turn one play that just completely blanks it. Right. Um, right. And now that deathrite shaman's been banned, we've actually been seeing goblins put up results again. So it's oh, like, that's awesome. Yes, I, I love goblins. Yeah, goblins. Oh yeah, goblins making a comeback. Actually, a little further down the list, there's some new goblin toys. But uh, yeah, I've been seeing actually our local. Uh, there was a local tournament. Uh, like a dual battle for dual land tournament and goblins ended up winning the whole thing. Um, been seeing it like pop up in magic online lists and one case. So it looks like goblins is coming back, which is, it's just so funny that one toughness is responsible for an entire archetype, just taking a back seat for a while. <laughs> yeah. Uh, goblins is awesome. I, I love goblins. It's, it's always such a eminently fair deck that does some unfair things, you know, like goblin lackey, ridiculous card, but you know, the best goblin you can cheat into play is like a siege gang commander. You <laughs> right. know? So it's just like this really fun mix <laughs> mishmash of things. And you know, the fact that it's a red deck, that's all about like card advantage, right? You're like ring leadering stuff up and you're matroning for like the perfect card. Yeah. I don't know. I've always enjoyed goblins. And to me, I mean, I started playing legacy. My first legacy tournament was maybe 2005. And Goblins was the big thing at that point in time. And so to me, Goblins has always been very much a staple of legacy. And of course, it's gone in and out as time has gone in, in and out. So, But to see it come back makes me happy. I feel like if Goblins is good in the format, it means the format is probably doing okay. Yep. I remember one of my first decks is when I first started playing Magic. I was like, oh, what type of deck should I make? And like, I think Lord, the first Lord of the Rings had just come out. So I'm just like, ah, oh, elves are cool. I'll make an elf deck. And then my friend was like, nah, don't make elves. Everyone plays elf decks. Elf decks are boring. So I'm like, all right, I'll build goblins. <laughs> <laughs> and my favorite memory with the deck is I was playing against Stasis as the goblins deck. And the stasis player managed to get a stasis in play. And my, like, I had an army of goblins that swung in once and they were all tapped down. Um, but I was able to go runner, runner, drawing two goblin sharpshooters. And Ooh, I was able nice. to able to win the game by using one goblin sharpshooter to ping my opponent and the other goblin sharpshooter to shoot one of my goblins. So both goblin sharpshooters untapped and I got to do it again. That's so great. <laughs> it's like now, that is a fun card, by the way. Goblin sharpshooter. Oh, goblin sharpshooter, that- I think, is my it goblin sharpshooter and goblin welder are my two favorite red cards of all time. I love those cards. You know who designed Goblin Sharpshooter? Who? Richard Garfield. Really? Yeah. Wow. That is a Garfield special right there. Garfield special. Man, I like that card even more now. But yeah, Goblin Sharpshooter, I think because of that memory in particular, has just always been one of my all-time favorite cards. Yeah. Yeah, it's a fun one. I remember it's also very frustrating. If you're playing like elf, I've, see, I was the guy playing on the elf deck. Mm-hmm. Man, you do not want to be the guy yeah. banning a bunch of elves against Goblin Sharpshooter, <laughs> let me tell you. Right. Exactly. Uh, I remember back in the day, it's an article from uh, the Mothership from probably like 10, 15 years ago, and it was talking about uh, Goblin Sharpshooter from a flavor perspective and how originally it was like Goblin Gatling Gun, but they're like... Right, Goblin Gatling <laughs> Gun. That's, that's right. Yeah, they're like, but like Gatling Gatling is like the name of the guy who invented the, the Gatling machine gun, and they're like, well, he's obviously not on Dominaria, so we can't call it Goblin Gatling Gun. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, Goblin Sharpshooter makes a little more a little more sense. Right. Uh, flavor-wise, too, it's like, of course, a Goblin Sharpshooter isn't a sniper. It's a guy with just a machine gun firing in all directions. I think when Richard made the card, it was actually only two mana, too. Can you believe that? That'd oh, pretty, man. be pretty wild. I like these. I like this alternate reality. <laughs> 
even more playable. Uh, moving on with the list, though. After Battle Bond, huge smash success with Dominaria. I think you guys knocked it out of the park with this set. Being an entrenched Magic fan, this was everything I wanted from a set without kind of getting into the you know the cheesy stuff we talked about uh, last time you were on the cast as far as like going too deep in the hole with uh, you know throwback references. Yeah, I mean, Dominaria, I think, is one of the best sets we've ever made, period. It's a great mix of what we call lenticular design, mm-hmm. where if you're new and you see a card and you're just like, sweet, that's an angel, that's awesome. I don't even know why it's – what the history is. It's just a sweet angel. Yeah. And then for the experienced player, we get like, oh, that's Lyra Dawnbringer. See, that's cool because it's related to Rhea Dawnbringer, right? So yep. it allows us to really – like delve deep into it and if we've been playing the game for a long time but it allows the new player to not be alienated by it and it's got a, it's got a few things that are you know definitely targeted toward the enfranchised player but a lot of things that are really good for for all angles of players and as opposed to time spiral where you have cards that maybe if you've been playing for a long time you'll understand and a new player's got no chance of getting what the resonant story behind viscera deep walker is you know so um it's a huge upgrade yeah, for sure. And right off the bat, I've uh, been seeing play in Legacy Prison decks, Mono Red Prison, uh, as well as some affinity lists. Karn. I feel Karn Planeswalkers tend to push the envelope a little bit. Yeah, uh, Karn is, is strong. I mean, the thing about Karn, first of all, people love Karn. So if we make a new Karn, we want to probably try and see if we can make it good. But... You know, doing Kairos Planeswalker is a little scary yeah. because it means any deck can play it. Right. Anyone who wants to play Karn can play Karn. <laughs> My- so we spend a lot of time. Karn, we spent so much time on trying to get just right. Mm-hmm. Um, ultimately, I'm really happy with how he ended up because he reads incredibly strong. Yes. And he is pretty strong. But, you know, the, drawing your opponent's choice of the top two cards of your deck over and over is not quite as good as it looks. I mean, it looks it's it's, not, yeah. it's good. You get a card every turn. But, you know, if you're mana light, you're not going to get a land. If you're playing against a combo deck, they're just going to keep giving you removal spells, stuff like that. Um, but the minus ability is also huge, too. You play against Affinity or something in Modern, they're actually playing a couple cards now, which is a pretty big deal. Yeah. So, I, I don't know. I love how this came out. It feels like a really good representation of Karn. It's also a very colorless Planeswalker. A big challenge with colorless Planeswalkers is what is the space that a colorless Planeswalker would do, but a colored one wouldn't necessarily do? What is, like, a weird effect? Yeah. And this is such an unusual string of abilities that it really does feel colorless. It cares about artifacts, and it has this pseudo-draw ability, which feels very Karn-esque. Yeah, for sure. And it fits the flavor well. I mean, he's been there for a long time, seen a lot of stuff. <laughs> yeah, he's been around the block a few times, kids. <laughs> Karn has some war stories. <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> Uh, awesome. So, Karn pushing the envelope. Uh, really sweet. Uh, another Planeswalker from Dominaria. I feel it's rare to get two legacy playable Planeswalkers, uh, but we've been seeing the blue-white control and miracles lists uh, sleeve up Teferi, uh, which I was not expecting when I first saw Teferi spoiled. It is very difficult to get a five-mana Planeswalker playable in legacy. This... I mean, I'll be frank. I did not expect this card to see nearly as much play as it has. In standard, sure, but it's become a, sh- a staple of modern. It's seeing legacy play. I even saw a vintage deck with it. I mean, this is a primo five-mana Planeswalker. Um, and I think really the, the key here is the fact that it untaps two lands, right? Because it, it kind of costs three mana as long as you have five mana to access. Mm-hmm. Because you get to use – you still have your counterspell mana up. You still have your removal removal mana up, and a lot of things cost two mana or one and one two one mana spells. The other thing is it's just so good at putting the game away. It 
draws you a card every turn, meaning you can build up to get um, – to, to make sure you are just beating your opponent on card advantage. Right. And once again, it has that, that catch-all answer ability of, hey, your opponent's playing a troublesome artifact or enchantment. It's good at dealing with all of that, which is exactly what a blue-white control deck wants to do. I was talking with um, Benjamin Bateman the other day. He hosts the Masters of Modern podcast, so quite a modern aficionado there. Mm-hmm. And he said that he thinks Teferi might be the strongest Planeswalker of all time. Now, I, of course, was like, well, Jace the Mind Sculptor, you know, we had a nice little debate there. Mm-hmm. But regardless, he definitely got me thinking about it. And I would put Teferi in at least... Probably at least the top five, if not the top three. You know, my list goes probably Jace, then Liliana. I don't know. What's number three? Is it Karn? Is it Teferi? What do you think? Uh, I would say it's actually a debate which Liliana. I think two and three is filled by Liliana, the two versions. You know, Liliana the Veil and Liliana the Last Hope. Sure, sure. I mean, Last Hope is also incredibly strong. Um, so I would definitely put those two there. Um, I would say uh, Jace Chandra, as, she, as people like to call her, the uh, the Chandra Torch of Defiance, I think, is also yeah. in top five. I don't know if I would put Teferi in top I, That's surprising that he thinks it's the best Planeswalker ever printed. Well, you know, I mean, I, I think I talked him out from, from being better than Jace, but mm-hmm. he, it, was, it was a bold claim, admittedly. Yeah. But, I mean, it's, it's like, at least but I, even- I mean... Top yeah. five, definitely top ten, right? It's definitely top. 10. I mean, I haven't really had the chance to play with Teferi, so maybe my perception will change once I actually, you know, sleeve it up. But like when I first saw Teferi, I didn't even think it was going to be legacy playable, let alone see as much play as it does. Oh, for sure. I mean, I thought it would be standard playable. We all did. Mm-hmm. I certainly didn't expect it to see play in modern legacy, and wow, it is really kicking. Kick in the ballpark. Yeah. I mean, not not a phrase. I, who says kick in the ballpark? What does that even mean? <laughs> now, we're all about mixed idioms on this cast. It's I, great. I, I love going to <laughs> Safeco Field in Seattle and just kicking the outside. That's really, it, that accomplishes a lot. Exactly. Exactly. Kick, that's the name of the show, Kick in the Ballpark. Kick so it in the ballparks. <laughs> Uh, but I mean, go. I mean, go down the checklist. I mean, he checks off the three big things you want on a planeswalker. It gets you an advantage of you know drawing you a card. It protects itself because you can tuck tuck a problem some creature, and its ult wins the game. I mean, right? The, yeah, its ult is really good at winning the game. Yes. So I mean, I feel yeah, it checks off all the boxes. I just I feel it's very hard for me to wrap my mind around. You know, you really want your planeswalkers to be efficient so you can use them as often as possible. Like. But the difference between a three mana planeswalker and a five mana planeswalker is huge because that's between, you know, two to four or more turns of extra activations out of the three mana planeswalker compared to the five mana planeswalker. The fact that he can tuck himself, you can target Teferi with his own ability is also surprisingly relevant because it means that you have a way to win the game once you've locked your opponent out on the first ability. Granted, it's a lot easier for your opponent in Legacy to still do things with one land and a grip full of cards and isn't standard, but... You know, if you've locked your opponent out under an, an emblem and they're down to zero lands or something, you can just make sure you're going to win the decking war in the long game. Exactly. What's interesting is untapped two lands. Like, I feel that's such a green ability. I'm surprised to see it on him. You know, yeah, it could be could be green for sure. But I think it's kind of it's within the range of a thing that blue could do, untapping its own lands. True. Yeah. You so know, we've seen lots of untap effects. I it guess, can yeah. tap an untap permanence. And I, Teferi's a time mage, so it makes sense for him i think oh yeah that flavor wise that definitely makes sense uh yeah i guess when you put it i i i more associate like untapping any permanent with blue and then specifically lands with green but yeah i can i can definitely see that might might have been a little too strong if it was untap any any two permanents 
Oh, for sure. Who knows what might happen then? We already know what happens with Tezzeret. I mean, that's crazy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, speaking of Tezzeret, uh, Mox Amber has not really seen much play in Legacy, but has been kind of popping up in other formats. And I just wanted to bring it up because anytime you print a Mox, I feel it always worth noting. And with Moxon, I always feel like it's just a matter of time. I mean, it's a zero mana mana ramp. I've, mm-hmm. you know, what, what more do you need to know? Yeah. <laughs> we'll, you know, maybe it's not seeing a lot of play right now, but maybe we come back in five years after enough good one mana legends have been printed and Mox Amber is tearing up the format. Personally, I think this is a, a, a great card. And I've got to say the design on it is wonderful because to make them, once again, threading that needle is hard. Yeah. And to make a Mox that is exciting may be playable, but not playable everywhere. That is a hard job to do. Yeah, Dave Humphreys really nailed it with this design, I gotta say. Yeah, 100%. I thought it was I mean, if you great. look at the at our last Moxes, we've got Mox Opal, sees a ton of play. Mm-hmm. Chrome Mox, sees a ton of play and is banned in mini formats. Yep. So Mox Diamond, which, well, we know how that one turned out, right? <laughs> right. So, I mean, for to have this one be right in that narrow edge of interesting to think about and not quite there yet is fascinating to me but really it is on that narrow edge and if you just have a little more juice i think it could turn the other way yeah the the thing about from a design perspective and why i think it's so brilliantly made is moxes are best in the early game when they accelerate you and mox amber is specifically bad at giving you mana on the first couple turns yeah because you need a legend in play first unlike chrome mox or mox diamond which is good at giving you mana in the first few turns or Mox Opal in an Infinity deck because you're just going to have artifact lands and stuff. Right. So th- it's a great way to make it a zero mana cost mana accelerant, but that only turns on a little bit later. Mm-hmm, for sure. And I mean, I, as far as like threading the needle, I also feel going too far the other direction, like not, not making it good enough is very dangerous just because of the pedigree that Mox have. Like Mox make up the majority of the power nine. Literally more than half the power nine is Mox. So if you make a like a stinker of a Mox, it almost like it feels it feels like you're you're cheapening the name a bit. So right, no one wants Lotus Guardian, right? You know? <laughs> exactly. So which, do you know what that card does? Uh, is that like the like five mana and it's it's a creature that taps for mana or something like that? I forget. Oh oh oh, that'd be that would be wonderful. That would be Jared. good. But no, Sorry. Lotus Guardian is a. A seven mana four four flyer that taps for one mana. Ah, there we go. So, yes. <laughs> not quite. Which, by the way, the fact that it is a Lotus Guardian taps for one mana is like already That's... already a big big crown face. <laughs> He's a guardian but... of a petal, a single yeah. petal. <laughs> right, Lotus Petal. What could possibly go wrong with that card? <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> Um, moving on. I I was hesitant to put this on the list, but a bunch of people in the Facebook group are big fans of Goblin Chain Whirler. Uh, it's a powerful card, as we're seeing in Standard right now. Yeah. Um, all over is this seeing Legacy Goblins play? It's seeing a little bit. I mean, so I mentioned before how Goblins is making comebacks, and we are seeing Goblins list, but it's still in that beginning phase where they're like, all right, let's get our feet back under us. What, what's playable and what's not playable? So people are trying it out. Whether it's going to stick is another question. Sure. I mean, it makes sense. They haven't played it for a while. And there's a lot of new goblins that have come out. So what works and what doesn't? I could see a Chain Whirler if your opponent's, you know, maybe you could search it up if your opponent's playing a heavy tokens deck. But, man, there's so many good goblins in Legacy, especially three-mana goblins. Yeah. Maybe, though. Maybe. It does play well with uh, Kiki-Jiki. Uh, that's true. That's true. P- ping your opponent. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you had had anything uh, to you know relate about kind of the card's design. Uh, I mean, I feel yeah. Like- so mm-hmm. I, I do have, I got a little something. So yeah. I was on the early design for Dominaria, very very early. So it was me and Richard Garfield and Mark Rosewater and Aaron Forsyth and you know a real all star cast. You know, I've 
myself excluded. Um, <laughs> and I had the real good pleasure of working with Richard Garfield. Yeah, that's amazing. Brilliant. Absolutely amazing. In fact, one of the fun stories for the set is I was the file keeper for the set. So I was the guy who would enter all the cards into our, our databases and you know print the playtest cards and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And Richard Garfield would send all of his designs to me and then I would put them into the set. But all of the ones Richard emailed me were written as if they were like out of some folder from beta because Richard <laughs> wasn't as familiar with how we template cards today, right? right. So I would get cards that are like tap, written out T-A-P, to remove indestructible from creature, <laughs> does not affect, uh, effect does not end at end of turn or when card name becomes untapped. You know, just like a ridiculous thing like, like liter- that, right? liter- literal translations of rule text. <laughs> right, which was absolutely wonderful and I loved it. And working with Richard was a complete and utter delight. Um, <laughs> But one of his ideas, and I thought this was brilliant early on, was Dominaria has always kind of had a bit of this monocolored focus, right? I mean, early on in Magic, you had these cards that really rewarded you for playing a lot of a certain color. And over history, we've also made a lot Force more of those of, on Dominaria. Force of nature. Right. A great example of that. Or even Shivan Dragon wants a lot of mountains. Yeah. And so we, we started with a little more of that in the set. We tried mechanics of it and so on. Ended up pulling back on that. But we kept the cycle of these five rares that did it as kind of a little nod nod to that and to allow for stuff to happen. And of course, Goblin Chain Whirler, seeing a ton of standard play right now because of that. And it's seeing, I guess, even a little bit of legacy play here too. So it's super cool to see that that idea translate all the way through to legacy, which has access to some of those really early Dominarian cards. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and also, speaking of uh, playing well with uh, early Dominaria cards, uh, Antiquities War. Um, oh, yeah. So I drafted a ton of Dominaria. I thought the Dominaria limited environment was amazing. And one of my favorite decks to draft is actually the Antiquities Ward, like ar- blue, blue red artifact deck with, uh, with the Antiquities War. And I'm like, ah, oh, this card's like super powerful. Like maybe this will see like standard or modern play. And then all of a sudden I start seeing like legacy lists pop up with the Antiquities War in it as like a way to power out and then just boost your affinity team. Yeah, I, I know a noted legacy and vintage warrior, Danny Batterman, is a huge Antiquities War fan and has tried brewing a lot of decks with it. It's been fun to see it see uh, it turn out. I've actually – so I've been spell-slinging a lot recently as we record mm-hmm. this. This is my first weekend home in Seattle in two months. So Jeez. I've been all around the all world. Over. Yeah, I've, I've literally been around the world um, going from here to Southeast Asia to Europe, back, L.A. Uh, to – anyway, all over the place. Um, I've been playing a lot of Magic. And a lot of spell slinging. And one of my favorite standard decks to spell sling with right now is this blue black artifacts deck with Antiquities War. It's not the best deck or anything, but it is really fun. And man, when Antiquities War goes off on its third stage, it's usually game over. Like you would attack for so much damage. Uh, you might have to send me that list, Gavin, because I've been toying with getting back into standard with how much I love Dominaria. Oh, it is it is so much fun. You just play like all these you play like Cogworkers Puzzle Knot and Servo Schematic <laughs> that like double up your artifacts. Oh, uh, that's and just you're, you're you're generating so much value. You have Merchant's Dock Hand as this one-mana creature that lets you find cards on top of your deck, right? And then you've got um, – uh, well, what's the seven-mana demon that, with Improvise? I can't remember the name off the top of my head. Uh, Bells and Lock? Or no, 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 no. There's the seven-mana demon from Aether Revolt that improvises. Oh. And um, so it comes down really, really quick. It's a five-mana, five-five demon. It can shrink your opponent's creatures. And at the end of each of your turns, they have to discard a card. So it's it's super brutal. Um, and so it plays that. And then, of course, as its centerpiece, you've got this saga, which allows you to just 
kill your opponent with all these extra little dinky tokens and artifacts you've, you've put onto the board. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's always funny because the first few turns your opponent's like, what are you doing? You're just like slamming all, all this goofy stuff down on the board. It's, it's not really getting you anywhere. And then, and then they quickly find out, oh, okay, Antiquities <laughs> War. Wait, That's going to be a bad time for me. That wins the game. What is, what is that? Oh, Herald of Anguish. Herald That's of Anguish. That's what it's called. Gotcha. It's a it's a nice one. I like that card quite a bit. Um, and then sometimes you just win with a Herald of Anguish beat down, and yeah, you just have you know some light improvised stuff going on. You get to play Metallic Rebuke, which is really fun because you play a turn one um, artifact, and you can have a turn two counterspell, which no one ever expects. Anyway, Ooh. I know this is uh, leaving a uh, legacy, not leaving a standard, <laughs> but I'll send you send you the. It's deck okay. List. Yeah, send me the deck list. I'm taking I'm taking notes. Um, with it though, I did just want to talk real quick just about how sagas came into existence because I mean it's not often that every that we get a new card type in Magic. It's not every day. And uh, the story I heard is that this was the original design for Planeswalkers that ended up getting shelved. So it is pretty similar to the original design for Planeswalkers, but that's not really where it came from. Mm-hmm. Um, so we were working on stories. We knew that stories would be a huge part of Dominaria because we're going back to this world. There's a lot of stories to tell. And the people here clearly care about these stories a lot. And it makes sense to line that up with our players, too, because our players care about the stories of Dominaria a lot. And we're trying to find a mechanic that would do that. And eventually we came up with this idea of what if there was a card that did something in a sequential order. And that's kind of where we're like, oh, a card that did something in a sequential order, kind of like original Planeswalkers. Because when Planeswalkers were being worked on for Lorwyn, that is actually how they worked. They would do, instead of having abilities you would trigger on or off, it did its first thing, its second thing, or its third thing. But that didn't make a lot of sense for Planeswalkers. Because it felt made your uh, Planeswalker feel like it was a dumb robot. Mm-hmm. It'd be like, you know, you're playing Garrick Wildspeaker, and it's like... Untap two lands. Okay, that makes sense. Make a token. Okay, they kill off your token. Then it overruns. You're like, Garrick, what you doing, buddy? <laughs> right. Like, you're, you're a sentient creature. You're, you're smarter than this. There's nothing to overrun. Um, yeah, exactly. So the design ended up being changing with the whole plus minus system we have now. And frankly, I think Planeswalkers are better off for it because it gives you some control oh, yeah. over what's going on. allows these cool ultimates you get to build up to. Um, but so when we were doing the sagas... And we were like, oh, we want these sequential story cards. That was like, oh, right, like like the original Planeswalkers. And we got to derive a bit of inspiration from that. Mm. But we actually kept a lot of the playtest cards. I, I have them still around. And we went through so many iterations of these guys. Um, originally, instead of advancing every turn, they advance when you did something in particular. So it would be like whenever you play a creature, advance them. So you're, it's like, oh, I'm telling uh, the story of Banalia. Right. So they're going to move forward as I'm playing creatures. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, they would also only do something at the very end instead of along the way. So it was like you're working toward this big payoff. You know, it was like, okay, we're going to play out the story. It's not going to do anything for a while. You'd get this payoff. Uh, we tried out a version as well that's very similar to the current version, except you could also pay mana to advance it. So it was during your upkeep or when you paid mana. We tried out so many different versions of these um, with symbols with symbols that were like um, combining effects. So it'd be like, okay, the first ability is a paw print. And the second ability is an axe. And then stage one is paw print. Stage two is axe. Stage three is paw print axe, right? So you get you get both effects. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, um, and actually, a lot of this was spurned by Richard Garfield. He came up with uh, the original idea for the saw, a lot of the sagas and made the original playtest cards for them. I, I have those, and they're still incredible to look at. Sweet. Um, but, yeah, it was a team effort, and I'm so glad with how these turned out. It's just absolutely amazing. And... Also, the fact that cards look different, I think it's really striking and cool. I love mm-hmm. how the art turned out on them. Yeah. And I will definitely use Sagas at some point in the future. Maybe not anytime soon, but next time we're back at Dominaria, I would not be surprised to see Sagas make a very exciting return. We have a lot of stories to tell, and we did so few in this set that we have a lot of ideas for 
what else we could do. Yeah. I will say the my only disappointment with Dominaria was that it was a one block set. I just loved it so much. <laughs> you know, I I'll talk to a lot of friends about Firefly. Have you seen Firefly before, oh, Jerry? Of course. Great show. Right, so a lot of people say, man, Firefly was so great, but it only got one season. I wish, I wish it had more seasons because we'd get more awesome episodes or whatever, you know? I mean, just more, and, more Nathan Fillion is all we really want. <laughs> and while I appreciate that, yeah, the, the first season was really, was really good, I almost wonder if the, there had been more seasons, if it would have anywhere close to the legacy it has today, where it's like this wonderful, self-contained thing, this one season of awesomeness. And if it had been expanded out to two, three, four, five, six seasons and been beaten into the dust, would it still have that kind of pedigree that it currently, currently has? Yeah, and true. frankly, you know, listening to what people have said about it, over the years, uh, to what the ideas for the second seasons were and third seasons were, a lot of it doesn't sound super compelling to me. Yeah. And with Dominaria, originally we had two sets for Dominaria, um, where Core M19 was um, was going to be a second Dominaria set. We designed it, um, not the whole set, but we were deep into the design process for the set. And what ended up happening is we decided we wanted to bring back the Core set, so we turned the second Dominaria set into the Core set. And what that let us do was it let us shift our, our favorite designs from the second set into the first set. And so really, the one Dominaria set we got is a combination of both of our favorite pieces of the two Dominaria sets we made. And I feel like because we got this one set that is so awesome, it has all these great ideas packed into it, and similarly with Firefly, you know, that they, they packed a lot of great ideas into, into their one season because they didn't know if they were going to get any more. And we packed so many of our great things into, the, into this one set, um, and that's why part of why it's so awesome. I'm not saying that if it had been two sets, it wouldn't have been awesome, or wouldn't have plenty plenty to do. But I think I do, it, it doesn't yeah. hurt that we're able to just take the best pieces of both and jam it into Dominaria. And don't worry, there's plenty to do in another set. We'll go back here someday. You'll get more Dominaria. <laughs> yeah, I guess but that's true. Too much, awesome. a, too much of a good thing. <laughs> um, so anyway, who knows how it would have turned out if we'd gone down the path of making both of them. But I, it's awesome how it turned out. I'm really yeah. glad that we have Dominaria. I mean, I, I'm actually glad Corsets making a comeback. I liked Corsets. I think Corsets are fun to draft. And I do feel of all the sets... Uh, in Magic's history, corsets are what feels like the most unique magic aspect to me. Like when I think of like pure magic from when I first started playing, like of course Dominaria is the plane that we were on, so it's what I associate with magic. And I feel corsets harken back to that better than any and you know anything else. Um, so I do think I do see what you're saying. How like core 2019 is a natural progression for Dominaria. It's also great. It's, you know, we have a lot of people coming back and getting interested in the format or interested in magic because of Dominaria, mm -hmm. fantastic time to return um, to the corset. Hey, come check out what's going on. Let's check out what's going on when the story get kind of back into the vibe of magic. And then now we can hit Ravnica really hard coming out this year, which is going to be return to Ravnica or not return to Ravnica. Uh, Guilds <laughs> of Ravnica yep. is a really sweet set. Re so. Return to return to Ravnica. The, the original return name. to return to return to Ravnica. <laughs> Indeed. Um, and return to return to Ra I, I just keep putting extra returns in front of it. <laughs> Every it, time. It's like instead of uh, like movies, how there's always like the, the sequels. It's like that's how magic goes. We just add return as a prefix. <laughs> Um, well, also with, I mean, speaking about goblins making a comeback, first on the list for 2019, uh, Goblin Trashmaster is getting some buzz from goblins players. Um, Lord, that also just blows up artifacts. Yeah, and once again, this is a great example of a card that you can play main deck and helps fight off 
this thing you don't normally have an answer to. And first, it's a lord, which is awesome. And then, yeah, you can play, you know, one or two copies in your goblins deck, matroning it up, and then, man, Affinity's going to have a bad time or, you know, whatever artifact-based deck your opponent's playing. Right. Um, one of the things we did with the core set is when we brought it back, we had a lot of discussions about what we are going to do differently this time around. What we are going to do differently to make M19 more exciting than previous core sets? What were the new philosophies we want to put in place? And while we still want it to be a very accessible set, we want everyone to be able to play it. If you're new coming in, it makes sense. We also knew that we would need stuff for people who don't normally pay attention to core sets to care. And so we ended up putting in a lot of cards targeting at modern and other eternal formats, just kind of get people a little more excited and draw the attention of someone like a modern player who already has a lot of the cards in a set that's half reprints already. Right. And that's where Goblin Trashmaster came from, and a host of cards like it. Uh, Mistcaller and... Um, What's the what's the one where you exile a colorless creature? Exile a colorless creature? Oh, uh, demonic off? Not is it demonic offering? I know the picture. It's like uh, this giant demon grabbing an Eldrazi and like crushing it. It's sweet art. Um, right. Yeah. The, the problem with working on Magic is I just know all the goofy playtest names. I don't <laughs> right. know the names that that actually came out with them. But you know. So there's some cards in at rare that frankly look pretty weird. Like they, they're not, they don't make any sense in the course at 2019, really. But they really, 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 really impact these older formats and get people interested and excited about them. Um, so I, I'm cool. That, I'm happy that we took this tactic, and it allows some cards like this to be printed and impact formats during a time where you wouldn't normally expect that to be the case. Yeah, for sure. What is the name of it? What is the name of that card, man? <sighs> Uh, on the tip, tip of my tongue. I can get uh, Infernal Reckoning. Infernal that's Reckoning, that's what it is. There we go. Um, yeah, I think that, that card's sweet. Most I just love the art. Like, seeing this giant demon crushing an Eldrazi, which are also just, like, in perspective. Like, that's art where you wouldn't think much of, but knowing the backstory of magic, just that puts that art in a whole new perspective. You know, it's another great example of the lenticular thing we're talking about. It's like, if you look at it from far away and you don't know much about magic history, just a cool demon smashing something. Yeah. That's sweet. <laughs> but if... You and me look at it. We look closer. We know, hey, that's an Eldrazi. They're colorless. I get it. That's cool. Right. Exactly. Um, also, kind of like you already mentioned it, Miscaller. I feel, uh, last time you were on, I think we were talking about some merfolk that got printed. And you were just like, oh, just you wait. We got some cool merf- merfolk in the pipeline. And when I saw Miscaller get spoiled, I'm like, I wonder if this is the card Gavin was referring to. Uh, yeah, uh, we knew this one would be a legacy <laughs> shot. And I think it's seeing some play, right? Yeah. I mean, merfolk isn't seeing a ton of play right now in legacy. But, I mean, Miscaller is definitely one of those cards that easily gets slotted in. I mean, Containment Priest for merfolk is is how it's been summed up and i think most people just know of it as the merfolk containment priest <laughs> rather than just calling it miss collar well and a lot of people um have tried this in modern too i know in their merfolk decks and yeah merfolk mm-hmm. isn't at its peak right now but maybe it'll come back eventually. oh yeah and this is a great yeah, way definitely. to for one mana basically having a seal of dealing with show and tell shenanigans is really nice I'm going to need you to lay off of uh, the show-and-tell hate, please. I would really appreciate that. <laughs> hey, I gave you Arcane Artisan. It's fine, right? That's fine. You, you did. Got and it does that. get around Miss Collar, so I guess I, I guess I have to be okay with that. Right. You know, we, we, we give and we take away. <laughs> exactly. The wizards giveth and wizards taketh away. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I think Miss Collar is just kind of just super, just concise, cool design. Um, the fact that, you know, you have to sacrifice it rather than containment priest, just, which just sticks around is really relevant, which also just, I feel, lets you play around with like Aether Vile shenanigans that much better. Right, right. Yeah, absolutely. 
Um, it, uh, you can flash this into the Ether Vial, which is really nice too. You know, you, it's, it's a deck that plays Ether Vial, so you leave it on one. They try to go for the show and tell, and well, as I'm sure you know too well, Miss Color could come out and ruin, ruin your day. Uh, oh yeah, because like usually you're just worried about uh, uh, Curse Catcher. It's like oh, they're uh, right. It's like I got to leave an extra one up so that the, when they violin the Curse Catcher, I can pay pay for it. And they wa- they violin Miss Color, and you're like, oh, I'm having a bad day. I played around the, uh, around the wrong hate card. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, but yeah, Miss Collar, Miss Collar, super sweet. I think that's a home run, and I feel uh, we just need to wait for you know Merfolk to put up a bit more results before we kind of start seeing that show up in more lists. And you know, you don't have to play a Merfolk deck either. You can also yeah. play in some other deck on turn one. I don't know how much play that's really going to see, but it's an option. Is it's good to have these sideboard options for sure? Yeah, for sure. Uh, up next, uh, Amulet of Safekeeping, which my my note for it is someone at Wizards of the Coast just really hates Storm. <laughs> yeah, to me, this is an example of a card that you read and you're like, I do not know what the story is here. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, it turns out this is top down Storm hate. So <laughs> yeah, it's like it's pretty- someone someone was wronged. Someone was wronged. Like, I want to look at the designer and just be like, who hurt you? It was probably Bryant Cook. Bryant Cook hurt you. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, we... We like making, as I mentioned, we like making cards in this core set that we're going to be shots at modern legacy. And this is an exact example of that. It fights off a lot of things. It's a really efficient sideboard hate card. Mm-hmm. It's not all crushing. It's not like stony silence level. There are ways around it. Yep. It, is, it is just a permanent. You can balance. It's an artifact you can abrade, as we mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. But it is still quite a reasonable hate card and good against things like Empty the Warrens in addition to hating off other things. Yeah. Well, what I just love is that it, it just it hates out both ways that Storm decks like to win the game with right. <laughs> go- right. yeah, like Goblin Tokens and it's just like you're never getting up to uh, you know that critical mass in the first place. So even if you got Empty the warrants for like two it's still not going to do anything right you just gotta you just gotta you know get enough mana ritual enough times you can pay for its first ability right that's that's all you gotta do. yeah exactly no <laughs> um i didn't put it on the list but i did also just want to point out uh the nickel bolus card is actually showing up on a couple grixis control lists really that's awesome yeah i forget what it was i think it was either the Le- moto legacy challenge or the star city games classic there was a grixis control list in like 13th or 14th place and it ran a kess and a nickel bolus as it's spicy uh oh, spicy you stole my heart that's awesome <laughs> i know right uh, but yeah i thought nickel bolus like you we've talked about it a little bit before with like the flip cards but uh like i feel nickel bolas like karn is another one of those you know really popular planeswalkers that can tend to push the envelope just because story-wise nickel bolas is just this you know unstoppable force in the storyline which has become you know the main villain of magic right now right and I mean, first of all, I gotta say, the throwback to doing all the Elder Dragons in the course that is oh, awesome. I'm so I glad we did that. That's so it. cool. I've been listening, um, uh, I don't know if you listen to Unspoken Realms, but it's a podcast that, you know, reads the storyline in podcast form. And I have been loving the core 2019, uh, storyline. Like that. Yeah, isn't it great? It is so good. Like hearing the, the backstory of like how Nicol Bolas and Ugin like came into existence is just from a, like a flavor perspective, amazing. Um, so it's first of all, it's super cool to do that. But, Second of all, yeah, we wanted to make a good uh, Nicol Bolas strong. A four-mana Nicol Bolas is something kind of new and different. And the fact that he comes down, four-mana, four-four, gets that value right away, making your opponent discard a card. And then if the game ever goes long, you're just going to crush them underneath that uh, Planeswalker. is pretty nice. Yeah. And it also just makes sense with uh, the story really well. Uh, because, you know, it's, yep. it's a ba- he comes out, he's a baby dragon, so that's why he's so cheap. And if the game goes long enough, he turns into his, you know, omnipresent, powerful Planeswalker form. And somewhere in the middle, he reads books. I'm not really sure where that where that part happens. But he, I know, right? I feel like 
feel pretty good about him doing that. <laughs> it's so funny looking at the art for the original Nicol Bolasta today, <laughs> like how he's evolved over the years. <laughs> all right. All right. Here, here's a question. Without you looking at the artwork, tell me, is Nicol Bolas in the original artwork wearing glasses? Uh, I think. I know one of the Elder Dragons is. I just don't know if it's Nicol Bolas. I'm going to say no. I don't think he's wearing glasses. All right. You guessed correctly. Good work. A lot of people reference Nicol Bolas' original artwork as saying, you know, the glasses-wearing, book-reading Nicol Bolas. And I, I think people just imagine him having glasses in his art. But he doesn't. He doesn't have glasses in his yeah, art. Yeah, he doesn't. But uh, just curious if uh, one, which camp you were in. Does one of them have glasses, I feel? No, actually none All of them. Th- or maybe... I know, I know Urza has sunglasses. Yeah, Urza does have sunglasses. <laughs> which is oh, another wild magic card. I can't believe we have a magic card called Sunglasses of Urza. But there, here we are. Well, I love uh, what's – it's like the Japanese translation of uh, Yagamoth's agenda is like Yagamoth's day planner. <laughs> 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 like that's one of my favorite stories of uh, like magic names and how they, uh, they, cross, they uh, cross the translation border. <laughs> uh, but yeah. Yeah, I think uh, Nicol Bolas was sweet. Uh, rounding off Core 2019, Remorseful Cleric. Just you got to have that Graveyard Hate. I feel we got a new Graveyard Hate card every you know every six months or so. Yeah, and I mean, as I mentioned, it's good to have some hate cards in case Graveyard ever becomes too powerful and standard. We like having that release valve a little bit of, hey, if Graveyard becomes too strong, we've got a two-mana Tormod script we can use. But it's also, yeah, just a, quite a good modern slash legacy option to sideboard with helps that it's a spirit too i know some people are trying to make spirit tribal happen in modern and this is a nice little seed for that Mm -hmm. to kick it up a notch um it's you know i I just love having beaters with effects on them too it's like a little hate bear action that can sack to do its effect if needed yeah but once again doesn't stay on the board forever unlike say a like a creature ley line Mm -hmm. it's it's gonna go away yeah you have to get rid of all your opponent's stuff but maybe you can rebuild after that maybe you can hard cast your bridge from below and make it happen yeah, for sure. Uh, and rounding off the year, this has been a fun journey, Gavin. Uh, just full spoiler come out. I don't even know if – are these in stores yet? Uh, uh, Commander 2018. Yeah, these will be in stores on August 10th. So as we record this, not quite out yet. I don't know when you're going to be listening to this, loyal listener, but hopefully you know what day it is more than I do. <laughs> um, and there's a few cards that might have legacy shots. I mean, once yeah. again, we didn't really make anything intended to be a super strong legacy hit. But I have I could see some things like Eureka, the Tiger Shadow. Some people have talked about using this ninja because it's not mm-hmm. only a ninja that draws you a card like Ninja of the Deep Hours. But also if you say, I don't know, brainstorm an Emrakul on top of your library, you hit him for 15. So that's pretty good. Yeah. So I, I've been uh, talking to some people and they're trying to make like a uh, Ninja of the Deep Shadows with Baleful Strix and uh, uh, Nariko the Tiger uh, type uh, deck, which I just like kind of value town. Uh, maybe throwing in uh, some, uh, what's his name? The uh, Lee of Old, things like of that nature. Oh, wow. Yeah. That, that, that's nice. That's nice. Um, so people people are definitely playing around with them. But yeah, it's. I mean, it's still too new. We don't really know what's going to see, uh, see play, but there are definitely some interesting cards in it. I mean, one thing I like, uh, one of my favorite just cycles in the history of magic is the Magus cycle. I just love these oh, cards. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, Magus of the Balance, uh, I thought was a cool addition. We got one more to go too. We got to get the green Magus printed next time. So stay tuned for what that is. Ooh, I'm I'm pulling for Magus of the Eureka, <laughs> Mag- Magus of the Discovery. Have a Eureka effect. That would be fun. 
have to just wait and see, I suppose. But yeah, there's a few cards in there that might be legacy playable, and st- you know, I'd be very curious to see how, how it all turns out. I'm always looking at legacy after one of my Commander or Battle Bond style sets releases, like, ooh, what's going to make it this time? I like seeing what makes the cubes. That's always really important to me because I'm mm-hmm. a big cube player. And then seeing if anything shows up in legacy is usually pretty fun. Yeah. Because I love uh, cheating on spells, uh, I love uh, Unit Cryptic Sovereign. I, I think that's oh. really cool. <laughs> well, and y- Yenit is super fun, too, because, well, it's not only just a really fun card to play, but we worked so hard to make that card be as odd as possible. Mm-hmm. Like I don't know how I don't know how closely you've looked. Oh at no! It. I, like I was going to point out, I love that it has menace. It has to be blocked by by an even number of creatures. Like that's really cool. So a few things going on here, right? So it's got three abilities. It costs five. It's a three seven or a, a, three, a three five. five yep. Right. So it's all odd. Uh, it's got three odd na- words in its name. They're all an odd number of characters. The flavor text is seven characters. That's an odd number. All the words in it are an odd number of letters. It's an odd card number. And I'm not going to spoil all the odds. If you look at the art, though, there's a lot of odd things going on. Three horns, three eyes, three pillars, so on and so forth. So just when you get a second, take a close look at Yenit and see how many odd things you can find going on there. Oh, we worked man. really hard to make that card truly as odd as possible. Like I knew- Not to mention flying and menace is just odd on its own. Right, flying. And menace, <laughs> yeah. Oh, I didn't even go that deep. I like I saw like a couple of them, but I didn't realize just how deep in the hole you guys went with the odd references. <laughs> oh, Jerry, I went that deep. Oh, so deep. Uh, what I do love though is that uh, Emmercool is fifteen, which is an odd number. Which is uh, oh which yeah, is yeah, yeah. That's definitely something you can do. <laughs> um, it's banned in Commander, but if you want to make it, make it work in Legacy. Go for it. Yeah, I'll just sneak attack it in. I'll, I'll put, I'll brainstorm Emrakul on top, and then sneak attack in uh, Yenit. It'll, it'll be great. It'll turn out. The awesome. thing I love about that is you're like, I could have sneaked in Emrakul, <laughs> no, <Nope>. but instead, <laughs> I'm gonna let me tell, let me show you what I got. <laughs> I just really want that cast trigger. That's, that's what it is. <laughs> that's true. That, that is true. Um, also, entreat the dead. Uh, throwback to entreat the angels. Yeah, and this is another card I think it might have some fringe legacy shots. Definitely at least cubable, but I mean, it's paying four, five, six mana to bring back, you know, two, three, four creatures out of your graveyard. There's a lot of power there. I mean, unloading cards from your graveyard is strong, and getting cards into your graveyard and legacy is super easy. So maybe in a Nick Fit style deck or something, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, I think it it's close just because because you mirrored it so closely. They entreat the angels. I feel the difference between one black and two black for the miracle cost is is huge for it. Um, like I feel if this was one black and X, this would see play in all like the traditional reanimator builds um, as a way to just kind of uh, just go off with it. But I do think, you know, we we can see some, like, value black-green lists that have a lot of fun with Entreat the Dead that just want to, like, fill up its graveyard, make a bunch of mana with a veteran explorer, and then go to town. And that's, once again, it goes to show how narrow the band can be in card design, right? You're saying that a single mana symbol decision might be the difference between this card seeing a lot of play in Legacy or no play in Legacy. Oh, yeah. And also, and the single mana decision is in, like, the miracle cost, which is, like, the subtype of the card. Like, not even talking about the actual casting cost of the card. <laughs> and, and earlier we talked about how the second toughness on Deathrite Shaman was so huge. So it just, just goes to show how these tiny razor's edge decisions can make such a big difference going forward. And, you know, we, we really spent a lot of time focusing on every single one of them. And 
hopefully we get a most right. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think you guys overall do do a great job with it. And I mean, whenever we say it's like, I wish that card was just a little bit better. A lot of times we're not thinking of the consequences. Like if that card was just a little bit better, like what type of waves would that cause in the in the entire right. format? Like you could easily just capsize the boat. <laughs> right. It's really uh, here's a classic example. So I used to write this column for Daily MTG called Reconstructed, where people would send me their deck lists, and I would post them, and then I would talk about how I would change them. And I'd pick a new deck every week to talk about. And so each week, I got sent tons and tons and tons of deck lists. And after Return to Ravnica came out, I would say at least 40 plus, uh, that's maybe a little high, but at least 30%, at least a third of all deck lists I received, and I know that sounds absurd, but it is, it is not an exaggeration. At least 30% of all decks I received had the card Pack Rat in it, because people just wanted so badly for this card to be good. They're like, oh, it's fun, it's like this, pat, this rat build around, and you can discard cards, make tokens, super fun. And then, of course, flash forward a little bit, Theros comes out, Mono Black is the best deck in the format probably mm-hmm. and it's got four pack rats main and suddenly like no one's sending me pack rat decks everyone's <laughs> like pack rat is dumb please ban it and that's because the show it's like oh everything is everything sounds fun to make better until it's actually better and you're like oh no yeah then it's just depressive I mean, <laughs> chimney imp right chimney imp is this card we all make fun of if chimney imp was good it would be miserable you get to, you just like, constantly put cards from from your hand top on top of your library not very fun at all so it's it really is this narrow razor's edge of okay we got to make things in the right space Oh, boy. Yeah, that's true. I mean, yeah, imagine if, like, Chimney Imp just cost, like, one. Like, that right, right. That would be insane, but it would also be backbreaking for the format. <laughs> I mean, I don't know about insane at one mana, but it, it, if it's on any play, like, imagine it's a single black 2-1, mm-hmm. right? It's a black 2-1, when it dies, your mom puts a card from their hand on top of their library. Like, that card would, it wouldn't be break anything, but it would probably be playable, and it's not that fun. Like, losing a draw step is not super enjoyable. Yeah. So... Yeah, you know, it's a very different card, obviously. Yeah, but exactly. There you go. <laughs> Fortunately, a Razor's Edge decision is not turning a 5-mana 1-2 flyer into a 1-mana 2-1 beater. <laughs> but there are more Razor's Edge decisions we could talk about, yeah, for sure. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I do think the Deathrite Shaman one is probably the perfect example. Just, like, the uh, decision to add one toughness was the difference between Goblins being a playable deck and not playable. <laughs> sure. Right, absolutely. Uh, but, yeah. Uh, also, just wanted to say we were super pumped to get the uh, pr- uh, preview card for Commander 18, too. We got the uh the predict which uh, our listeners listened to uh last week yeah absolutely you know i i wanted to pepper it with a couple of cool reprints and um predict is a fun legacy reprint so y- you all are legacy focused seems like a great preview to give you guys i love predict i've always loved playing with predict um yeah. i've even tried to play it and f- even when it's not good you know <laughs> right <But laughs> when you've got ponder running around you can try and make it happen yeah, I mean, Predict is one of those cards where we talked about this in our preview episode where it looks like it's just a bad Night's Whisperer when you just look at it. It's like, oh, this is a conditional Night's Whisperer that may or may not work. Uh, but when you just conjun- put it in conjunction with like Brainstorm to clear the top of your library, uh, and then especially when you're just cheating with it, when as far as like going with uh, like Jace Fate Seal effects, um, it, uh, it definitely uh, can really tip the scales. And I think one of. One of my favorite things, and you can't do it anymore in Legacy, of course, but your opponent, like, activates top, but's on top of their library, and then you predict away their top. Oh, it feels yeah, so good. Exactly. It's like it killed your top and drew two cards. Right. I'm so into that. It's <laughs> so good. Uh, actually, that happened to me. Uh, it wasn't predict, but I played against Gerard Fabiano at uh, SCG Worcester 
a couple weeks ago, and he unexpectedly absent my sneak attack, and then it wasn't predict, but Jace fate seals uh, <laughs> to the bottom. But like that, just the, those sort of effects are just backbreaking. It's just like, oh, it's on top of my library. Okay, I'll just draw it next turn and then win. It's like, nope, goodbye. Yeah, we'll pass. <laughs> And yeah, just predict predict and just set up those uh those situations that uh that feel really good for the person casting predict. Yeah, it's, it's also just a fun card. It's a fun little mini game to play. Blind predict yep. is always fun. Blind too, predict so. is the best. <laughs> good times. Good times. Well that that kinda well, that wraps up the year. This this has been a lot of fun, uh just going back uh in the last twelve months, all, all the sweet stuff that has come out. A little trip down magic memory lane right there. <laughs> exactly. Uh, though I w- well, thank you for having me on, Jerry. I mean, it's always a blast coming on. And, uh, you know, I also want to say thank you to all the listeners. I'm on a lot of podcasts, but and I, when I go out to events, one of the most constantly mentioned ones is leaving a legacy. So thank you all who have come out to me and to talk to events when I've been out there and who have contacted me on Facebook or left posts, posts on various places. It's just really great to hear from you all. So thanks for being yeah. such great fans. and. Hope you keep listening to the podcast, and as long as you you keep listening, I'm sure Jerry and Pat will keep having me on. Hell yeah, that's awesome! I'm glad uh, I'm glad our fans are behaving out in the wilds. Good job, guys! Oh yeah, they, they exist as it turns out. <laughs> oh, they do exist. We were worried for a second. <laughs> oh man, yeah, that's that's awesome. Um, yeah, I, I think it's it's great. It's always fun having you on and getting kind of uh, behind the scenes. Uh, and I know lots of people had suggestions for cards. Apparently, what I learned, Gavin, is legacy players aren't uh, that aware of how like the passage of time because <laughs> like we're like, all right, guys, what are some of the coolest cards printed in the last year that uh, you want Gavin to talk about, and they were printing cards from like Cons of Tarkir. <laughs> it's, like, it's like guys, these these sets are like three, four, five years old, and they're like, really? It's been that long? Uh, it doesn't feel that long. <laughs> time passes in such a weird way in Magic, though, right? I mean, yeah, I talk about this all the time, but I'll be like out spell slinging, and I'll, someone will sit down, and I'll be like, hey, how long have you been playing for? And they'll be like, yeah, man, I've only been playing this game for five years. And it's like, if, if you told anyone you did something for five years, that would be like, wow, <laughs> right. you've done that for five years? But in Magic, it's just, it's like, oh man, there's so much of it to touch and do that five years is not that much. Well, um, I think it's like, uh, how long have you been playing guitar? Oh, only like five years. It's like, if you said that, you're probably a very good guitar player if you have right? been playing for right. five years. I mean, years. no, you're probably not like, you know, playing in Nirvana or something like that, but you're probably quite good. Yeah, like you, um, you can hold down an open mic night. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, you know, I was thinking about this the other day. I, this is my 17th year playing Magic. That's crazy. Yeah. How many things can anyone in their life say they've done for that long? Exactly. I mean, besides, like, breathe and go to the bathroom, right? <laughs> right. Like, I mean, 17 <laughs> years is a crazy amount of time, and it just doesn't feel like that much time at all. I know. It's true. It's true. I mean, I, I'm constantly, like, like when I that's how I had to go to, like, the Magic Wikipedia and look at the, like, order of sets printed in the last 12 months because I, I feel like it's, you're almost on, like, two separate clocks. You're on, like, the calendar that we deal with in our everyday life and then the Magic calendar, which is, like, this self-contained microorganism of, like, the passage of time and, like, the rotating of the sets. It's, 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 uh, it's kind of a funny interplay between them. Yeah, I mean, this is my seventh year at Wizards. It does not feel like my seventh year at Wizards. And it's just like, because, you know, my first set I worked on was Return to Ravnica. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that just happened. Yeah. Like, Return to Ravnica. Yeah. That, that, was, that was pretty recent, right? I, I still, but it's like, no, that was Gavin. That, we released that a very long time ago. Yeah, I think of, like, Innistrad as, oh, that's not that long ago. Like, in a, like I, I Legacy is divided into two periods, like, before Delver and after Delver. And, it you know, after Delver's only been, like, uh, like a year or two, right, guys? Right? <laughs> 
Nope. Right. Maybe a year or two of time playing in tournaments. Yeah. Right? <laughs> exactly. So, yeah. I mean, it, it is funny. So we'll definitely have to have you on again, uh, Gavin, so we can talk about kind of the, some of the older cars people wanted to talk about. Uh, if you're if you're still up for it, we can do our uh, tradition of uh, a magical Christmas with Gavin, <laughs> our holidays. Absolutely. Holiday I'm happy to come on whenever. Please uh, have me back. And listeners out there. Thanks once again. Thanks for listening. But also, if you want to hear me talk about any, anything in particular, you have questions, stuff you want to know, hit Pat and Jerry up with it. And next time we have a show, they can fire off all those questions, and I can just sit around and tell stories. I'm always happy to do that. Got a lot of great stories. Hell yeah! Uh, well, before we kind of wrap up here, Gavin, we uh, we started something new since the last time you've on. Instead of just doing scoops in the top eight, we're now doing scoops and poops. So scoops. Uh, shout out anyone that you want to show some recognition to uh, and poops something that annoys you <laughs> uh, I don't know that I have any poops for this week it, uh, but scoops you know what I'm going to scoop you in Jerry Aww, thanks. thank you so much for having me on this, this is awesome and really I want to scoop in the whole podcasting community this is the second podcast I've recorded this week and y'all are just so awesome every time I come on a show I mean I started off doing magic podcasts a long time ago and every time I come on Everyone is always so nice and wonderful, and they ask fantastic questions. And I actually go back and listen to podcasts after I've been on them, despite knowing everything we talked about. Like, it's <laughs> that much fun to listen to them. So th- thank you all for making such a great community. Even I actually, like, bought a nice mic setup, so I just have some, something in my house for all the podcasts that I'm on. Because I'm like, ah, i got to sound better. Like, I'm going to be on all these podcasts because I want to do the best for you guys, the fans. So really, thank you all so much for listening and coming and saying hi, and it really means so much. Um I don't know when the show goes up. What, what day does this go up, Jerry? Uh, it is going up next fr- uh, the Friday, which is August 2nd. August 2nd. Well, this show is going to go up on August 2nd. I'm going to be at Gen Con next week in Indianapolis. That's during when the show goes up. So if you hear this while you're at Gen Con, please come say hi. I'd be more than happy to meet up with you. You all really are the best fans in the world, and it means the world to me that you all listen and talk and engage as much as you, as you can. So thank you. Definitely. Also, I'm going to correct August 3rd. I can't read calendars, apparently. August 3rd is Friday. <laughs> Before I ruin someone's day and tell them that uh, the 3rd is a 3rd, is a, or the 2nd is Friday. and They, like, they show up for their mom's birthday on the 2nd <laughs> yeah. on the wrong day, and it's like, dude, what's going they, on? They missed their flight. <laughs> I don't know why you're using our uh, podcast as your way to determine what day of the week it is. That you, That is your own error, but yeah. Yes. <laughs> Magic time, am I right? Magic time, exactly. <laughs> uh, awesome, guys. Well, thanks for joining us. Uh, Pat will be back next week. He just couldn't make it uh, tonight, but he misses you. Uh, my scoops. Uh, yeah, but you know what? You know what? Poops to Pat. Yeah, poops, Pat. Come on, man. Poops to Pat. Got <laughs> where? Yeah. I told him he needs to get a giant hamster ball and just put his kids in the hamster ball, and that way he can uh, he can record to his heart's content. <laughs> well, let's bring the kids on the show. You know, make it make it's a family affair over here. I'm sure they got questions too. I can I can answer all kinds of questions. Exactly. Uh, I was, where, where do babies come from? No problem. I got <laughs> that we're covering that on the next episode. Then. <laughs> uh, awesome, my scoops. I'm definitely scooping you in, Gavin. Thanks so much for coming on. It's always a blast uh, hearing all about uh, the cards and just the inner workings of wizards. And also, you're just an awesome person to have on, man. <laughs> scoops. The section of the show where the two hosts congratulate each other on a great <laughs> yeah, job they've done. Yeah, it's great. We're the best, aren't we? We're just so awesome. Yeah. Also, we're so <laughs> humble. So humble. Uh, and my poops are also on Pat. Poop to you, Pat. <laughs> He's not going to listen to this. Don't worry about it. Uh, he has to. He's editing it. So, <laughs> oh, Pat, you're the best. 
Uh, yeah, he just like stitches together uh, like a bunch of clips from your audio. Just <laughs> careful. He has all the power. The editor, oh my the editor has final say. <laughs> oh, awesome. Well, Pat, I'm sure has uh, already played us out with some like uh, metal music. So uh, we're probably uh, just rambling at this point. But I hope everyone has a good night. And thanks for joining us. Thank you once again for listening. Have a good time and go forth and leave a legacy. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, awesome catchphrase. <laughs> <laughs>